I was thinking about it. You know, I'm I'm an introvert. Like I'm I'm, I'm a, a painfully and a, and always have been a painfully sort of interior person. You can you can change that as much as you want. If you if you packed everything up, like cut the internet off and move to a new town, like who would you be there? If you wake up every day, you have a capacity to be great. I'll ask you something. Is is the next thirty seconds guaranteed? Never. Never. You have to answer every day when you go to bed. Were you a good person? Were you kind? Did you care about others? Or were you selfish and only thought about what you wanted? Continuing to ask questions in like a kind or positive way. If I can create a spot where people can come together. Stay off the internet. Stop researching because all you're going to do is get in your head. I did what everybody does when you're about to die, start praying. This might be my last fork in the road. Get busy living or get busy dying. Yeah, exactly. Welcome to our journey, where open dialogue and curiosity are the only requirements. Whether it be serious or lighthearted, music, heroing stories, aliens, or politics or comedic debauchery, we attempt to peel the layers back and connect together in a way that's genuine and honest. Without any script or idea what the hell is going to happen, this is Organic Curious Human Interaction. We thank you for joining us and ask if you enjoy the show, please do all the things that social media requires for its more ridiculous algorithms. The like button, follow, subscribe, comment, and review. And although we may have a disdain for algorithms, it's how the internets work. But if you have as much disdain for them as we do, you can visit the website, chroniccuriosity.com. The link is in the description. You can find all of our stuff there. And the store, Tony, which you can pick yourself up some fantastically curious merchandise. Welcome to Chronic Curiosity. And here we go. That's possible, but I don't have an actual time constraint. <laughs> All right, I just um, want to make sure I didn't want to hold you up. Right yeah. Now. No, no. I was just telling him earlier that I was trying to go surfing, that I missed the, uh, the, me the group messages and stuff for it. So I'm just... <laughs> basically sitting around this you know till like noon or two so okay it's all fine <laughs> awesome um we'll, we'll go ahead and get started then if you're if you're good Let's to go do it all right uh well we have jason Sheftel with us today um author podcaster china extraordinaire uh ex expert <laughs> um uh you you so you do have your podcast uh called china unraveled uh which is it's interesting you you take a a different view or a different perspective, I guess, than a lot of people on China when they're discussing it, uh, you know, in the United States. Uh, and I also heard you have a, a book that's coming out or you're working on. Is that? Yeah. So I'm basically spending most of my days revising this book, trying to get it out probably early next year. And right now it's also tentatively titled just China Unraveled. Keep it simple. Um, but it goes, it goes really deep into everything. So a lot of the podcast episodes are sort of little snippets about big issues, important things I think people should know about China, kind of taken off in a little bit, just kind of pulled from parts of the book, current events. But that one goes really deep into stuff. So that's definitely, it better come out. That's all I'm going to say. It better come out. It needs to, it needs to, it needs to end. Right. <laughs> Writing a book is not, not fun. How long have you been working on it? Ooh, I mean, it's been intensely maybe two years. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, labor of love. Then I'm assuming <laughs> starts out as a labor of love. It starts out as a labor of love, right? And then you're just then you're just it's like sunk costs. <laughs> That's what yeah. you feel towards I, the end. Yeah. Um, well, we, you know, we really appreciate people's backgrounds and their s stories, and you know, kind of what drives their passion. You know, I guess 
how did you get to where you're at now and your you know what got you down that path and that whole story of sure yeah so for me i've been into i guess you could say china for a very long time i actually have a, a disabled brother and he the person who helped him basically the whole time i was growing up was a, a chinese guy and I, when i was a little kid i remember just thinking like damn this guy has really cool hair like he had he could have the full like like wi- a- asian sort of a master guru on the mountaintop beard he had the like the ponytail and like i i get more of the jihadi look when and i knew that from a young age that that was going to be my style so i thought that was cool but no that really i've just been i've been interested in china forever but a lot of the interest crystallized around 9/11 in the in the Iraq war early 2000s i remember thinking wow our country we're so great right and then we go invade these countries and everyone knew like early 2002 this was not going to turn out well british empire had been in afghanistan the russians the soviets everyone nothing ever changes and then we do the same thing in iraq and i remember thinking in the background like there's a giant massive far more complex far more powerful country that's developing and modernizing in the background and so i got fascinated by where that was headed what was going to happen and then obviously we just had the financial crisis all this stuff seemed to just suggest that major changes were happening in the world. So that's kind of where it all started. And I ended up getting a scholarship to go study in China, learn Chinese. I studied at a famous university in Beijing, and I was in and out of China from 2010 to about 2015. And I was actually going to go back in 2017 for another six months, but I don't really feel comfortable going to China anymore. I think you can see based on some of my, my stuff, I'm also probably not very welcome in China. And there are people that I know that have not, good things haven't happened to them, both from the academic professor types in China that are more liberal. There's a major crackdown going on. So there's all sorts of things that didn't feel good. And then I was really curious at this point how everything I've learned about China relates to the United States. I think that's what really keeps me going and pushing this labor of love to get this book out. Because I think what's really going to be interesting is how this country, for all of its successes and failures, how it just impacts what we're trying to do, what we're not trying to do, how we're failing, what we're really about. And that's what, that's what keeps me into it. And yeah, so I did from 2015 on, I was doing a lot of global development work, um, economics development, uh, global law, administrative law, stuff like that. And brought me, brought, that's kind of the story that brought me here. Gotcha. So you, you were intended to go into a, a law type background and then that, how did yeah, that, so how'd that a, get you over to China? Like, I, I have a law background. So I am, I did global, so development law. So a lot of natural resources, environmental law and systems. And when I was in China, I was studying like the big system. So if you look at the podcast and stuff I do, I'll talk about like agriculture or like energy in a big perspective or trade, global trade. And that's what I did when I was in China was like, look at the Chinese agriculture system. How do you feed 1.4 billion people? Not an easy problem. How do you get, how do you keep the lights on for 1.4 billion people? Not an easy problem. How do you transport 1.4 billion people around the country? How do you, all these things. So I was actually going like system by system, trying to see how this came together. They were trying to explain what they were trying to do and very creepy stuff during that time, but also very illuminating. And that's kind of the perspective I've taken. And so I also, yeah, I did a lot of global development. So I did consulting work in Argentina for development there, their attempts to develop and modernize. And I'm actually a big critic of a lot of the way things happen. I think this whole era of just all the development money we've sent all around the world, I think most of it's going to turn out not, it's just not going to work out. So that's another thing I'm trying to talk about really like what's going to work like are we just wasting are we throwing money around are we wasting it what's going to last and i don't know unfortunately i don't have the best uh hopes for a lot of this but it's important nonetheless so yeah well i know we talk about you know so the idea like i kind of mentioned before of, of the show is just we i i am not an educated man 
Um, everything I know, I learn from as I pick it up from the internet or where, wherever. Um, but it, I'm obviously curious, hence the, the title of the show. Um, and there just seems so, to be so much going on with everything. And we, we talk about politics and all different types of things on a very high surface level. Um, but we talked about, you know, the money going to these different countries and all this money that goes all over the place and whether it be, you know, even in our own nation to certain things that just don't seem the money doesn't get anything done. So where's this money going? You know, what are we doing with it? Are we just wasting it? Or is it just because it's just shifting hands back and forth between the politicians and the corporations? And I don't know, but it doesn't seem to be working very well. Like, so yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, also, just just to be frank, like learning off of Reddit and YouTube at this point is is maybe the way to go. Like I just because I have this background, I'll tell you most of the stuff you learn, like I had to unlearn all the things that I thought were wrong. That I went and I was like, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. But everyone just keeps doing it. Like you're saying, you keep throwing money at problems, doesn't seem to do anything, but you just keep doing it. You keep you stay in Afghanistan for twenty years. And then people knew like January twenty two thousand two. This probably isn't going to work. Like this is probably not going to work, guys. But we just have to tough it out. But this this question of where all the money's going is is a real one. We live in a really financialized economy. It really started in the '80s, and it goes hand in hand with this globalized world that we developed. You could suddenly build like a car. You could have dozens of pieces of any product built all over the world. So you could just send basically the way the world we built from the '80s on. You kind of used information technologies and cheap transportation to build every piece of every product wherever it was cheapest. And unfortunately, that usually just means like, all right, we're going to pick the slave labor here, the child labor here, and the, like, it's kind of the, the dirty truth of it. Um, but yeah, and you kind of you sent all that around the world, and then you basically assembled it all in China. And that's kind of where China got its everything. That's where everything came together. And what you have with the money flowing around the world is most countries don't know what to do with the money that they get. So the best example is just like Saudi Arabia. And we really changed the world in the 1970s. Like they have a bunch of money. Okay, we got oil. Let's build an island. <laughs> yeah, it's like, all right, let's build islands. Let's be, look, what are you even doing? The truth is the, the second like they started getting all sorts of oil money, they just sent the money back to US banks. And they just said, uh, make us a profit. Because we don't, what are you gonna invest in? It's sand, it's sand. There's, there's like, you know, there's no new industries. Saudi Arabia runs on basically you know, foreign, poor foreign laborers. They don't train their people. They're not, there's nothing, there's nothing to build or invest there. So they just sent the money back to the U.S. banks. They packaged it and repackaged it and sent it around the world. And that kind of in the 70s got started, this whole thing of just, just breaking money into pieces, sending it to do nothing, and just basically making money off the fact that the global population is growing and technologies are advancing in certain industries. But what you're talking about, just this idea that our government is throwing money at problems, doesn't achieve, achieve anything. Our corporations are throwing money at problems, doesn't achieve anything. That's really true in a lot of ways. And a lot of that I think is going to break down in this decade. I don't think it's going to function the way it's, well, not function. It wasn't really functioning before. But I think the, the fact that it's not functioning is finally going to be like uh, pretty apparent to everyone. It's just not going to be able to continue. Yeah, so I think an important kind of thought that I, I don't know if I picked it up from one of your podcasts or listened to something. I listen to a lot of stuff, <laughs> but nice to, to the, the understanding that the world didn't quite operate like it does now, you know, a hundred years ago, you know, everything, yeah. the, the game has yeah. completely changed, especially on like a economic and, you know, trade type 
platform and you know so we see all this money flowing all over the place and it's not doing any good so like i guess my kind of question it would be like all right well is this is this something new that we just haven't figured out you know i i go on rants sometimes about like social media that it's it's a toxic terrible place well the internet's new maybe it's just because we just haven't figured it out how to use it a good way yet or with you know all these government agencies and everything else is it is it set up and designed like that because it just seems like we get more and more politicians and more and more government and i'm not necessarily like a anarchist by any means but we keep seeing more government and more government spending particularly recently and what's it getting us it's just getting us into more debt and more trouble so it's like is it we're just failing at something we don't know how to do you know like a democracy or is it is there something more nefarious to it you know because a lot of people have those conspiracies <laughs> where it goes way off the the other end of oh this is all designed and you know there's a bunch of names you can't say or you'll get you know epstein or whatever but like yeah you know so like, what, what kind of the end of that spectrum understanding more than i know about international you know economics and whatnot oh, what do you for sure where do you fall on that line well i always i always go for incompetence more than like coordinated global <laughs> malevolence and like like guys can't keep a single secret about anything they they can't you know they can't hide stuff on their ipad from their girlfriends let alone from the entire like world um so i'm definitely on that i think a lot of what we see is just we're unwilling to give up the systems and the processes and the administ and the administrative agencies and the procedures that we've just developed and there's no one who generates new ideas and is able to really push them through particularly in the government so you just end up with i mean a great example is just like nato for example nato was a great thing to compete with the soviet union like prevented it from just steamrolling all of Western Europe. Um, a big event I like to give, and so I, I put it out in the book, is sort of, we just, we got, you were saying it perfectly, like 100 years ago, this world did not exist. We had an imperial, I call it just the imperial past. Basically, we had a world of empires everywhere. British Empire ruled a bunch of stuff. China was an empire, uh, Soviet Union, Russia, all, all these things. There was global empires, and there was not hundreds of nations, all individual nations, all trying to have their own identities, their own economies. No, they, you were just eaten up by bigger empires. That was what happened. That's what's basically been happening forever. And there's, there's good reasons about why that happened and all, but then the world changed. And the reason it changed is because the US decided to change it. We, we have, you know, we can go into it at some point, but the US is a pretty singular and powerful country in world history. And I'm not here to be a Mr. Um, American exceptionalist. I think we actually need to like really think about like, why is this the case? Because we don't want to be like, hoorah, and then you end up in Afghanistan, you still lose. You can go to Vietnam, right. you still lose. Um, but the real thing is, how can we go lose and still maintain kind of the status we have? If China goes and loses against trying to take over Taiwan, that country is going to crumble into many warring, vicious pieces. That's a very likely outcome. Um, the U.S. We go fail in Afghanistan, go fail in Vietnam, fail in Iraq, and like it's pathetic on a sense. It's like we, we feel dumb, but we don't, you know, we don't like come out of. We, we pick ourselves back up. So I think that's an important thing. But for most of the world. In most history, it was just empires. And then after 1945, things really changed. Um, and the way, I, the one cut I like to have on it is, you know, the U.S. basically, we didn't want to form our own empire in the same sense. Like everyone's always questions, like, is the U.S. an empire? Is this and that? And um, 
that's kind of a little bit of a deeper topic, but the real thing is we just, the whole world was eaten up by empire. So we wanted to just break up everybody else's. We wanted our own markets, kind of they're all in our way is a better way to think about it. Like British empire had 25% of the world in our way. Like we wanted to sell shit from, to one place or excuse me, uh, no, you're sell fine. stuff one There's place. No rules okay. here. Yeah, you're good. Okay, cool. Use yeah, all, use all the words you want. <laughs> yeah, you can, we want to sell shit to this country. We want to take stuff from them. We want to do this. But and if you just have global empires, they're just in your way. So yeah, everybody really needs to think. Like after 1945, you just think about what happened. Japan, this militant country, warrior that took over most of Europe and China, <clears throat> excuse me, suddenly starts creating Hello Kitty dolls in anime. And Germany, which took over all of Europe, suddenly starts sending, making VW bands for, vans for hippies to go run around California and stuff in. Like there was a major shift that happened that we're not talking about. You know what I mean? We're not talking about that. But it was, it was a huge change. And we, the U.S. basically paused global imperial conflict all over the world, like major ones, uh, not like little conflicts everywhere. And it sort of rewrote the, the global map. And we're all wedded to the institutions that kind of made that happen. The UN, NATO, all these things. And it's a big moment. It's really impressive. It's really cool. But most of this stuff isn't exactly working anymore. But no one knows what to do in the U.S. government. I mean, that's why I tell people, like, even whether you love Biden, hate Biden, or, or it was love Trump or hate Trump, these guys didn't have a plan for, don't have a plan for how to transform everything. There's too much going on. And what's happening is this things are just crumbling. Like a lot of the pieces are just crumbling and we're not going to be able to put them back together like in any time soon. So, yeah, well, there's a little, little cut on it. Kind of, <laughs> yeah. kind of went to a bunch of, a, a bunch of different places. Well, I, but, think, I think kind of breaking it down, it seems like there's just, you know, when you mentioned like, try, like even more simple, you have the United States of what, 330 million people roughly. Yeah. Um, and to try to like think about if running something like that with that many people with, you know, like you said, feeding that many people or all these different things, all the different people's needs, you know, I, I say it a lot that I think we are quite isolated. Mo the, the average person in the United States is, is isolated from what's really going on everywhere. Um, and I think that's had a negative effect on our thought processes because we 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 get so kind of self-centered in a way that we forget that even in our own nation we have another three hundred twenty-nine million, you know, nine hundred ninety-nine thousand, all these other people that we don't think about. And then you could you throw a country like China and the bunch where you said they're like one point five billion. No. Yeah, their statistics are getting a little fuzzy. You don't really know. They're kind of getting surprise, like Russia. Surprise. Like, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. We don't. We're not. Eh, like yeah. you look at all their graphs, and everything. It's like all the lines get suspiciously like flat or cur beautifully curvy. It's like that's not nature. It's, anyway, yeah, so, uh, well, like one point four ish, something like that. Yeah. Billion. So what, that's five times. You know mm -hmm. what we have, and it's trying to even think about those numbers. Kind of yes. makes your brain kind of. It doesn't really work. So, like, in all the interconnections, in in maybe you know, I I used to be very very cynical of government and all different things, and you know, most people should be a little bit, I think. Yeah, but definitely. When you realize, like you said, that there's so many people, there's so many things going on, we've never tried to work together as a world and connect all these things yeah. and all these economies and all these all these different things where it's, you kind of forget that like, Oh, like there's a lot going on. Cause when I, one of my favorite things about the whole COVID thing that happened was for whatever reason, I started listening to podcasts a lot more and it 
you I, connecting with a lot of different people and you realize we started this during because that too, but um, you realize that like there's a lot of people out there that are a lot smarter than I am. And when they're talking about really smart things, I'm like, I don't get that at all. And then when they say, man, I'm nowhere near an expert on this. And there's people out there a lot smarter than me. I'm like, well, I don't know what I'm doing then. Like, so you just realize everything is so in depth and there's so much going on that maybe, you know, I'm starting to lean towards more of that. I mean, the people that we, that are trying to control and trying to maneuver these things, they're just not capable of doing it. Maybe nobody is because it's just something we've never encountered before. Yeah. I've, I've had this sort of crackpot theory that I've been floating around. It's like, it feels like sometime in the 1970s, like our world lost the ability to deal with like the complexity of like everything. So whether it's like gender relations, international relations, um, just it feels like in every like our film, the art, the art world, military stuff, all these things, the complexity grew and our ability like of all the experts to deal with it seems to have kind of plummeted. Um, so I'd, I'd agree with that. Uh, and I think podcasts are all, honestly just so awesome. It's your ability. It gives, lets you get into conversations with people you wouldn't have otherwise. And it lets you just learn continuously. And you don't, I, I just, I also firmly believe like the great experts in most fields, they're really good, but it's, the expertise we need these days is really people who are like in tune with reality and trying to learn and, and like seeing how things work. Like, I don't know, like I know all sorts of people, they, they're either, they either get burned out by the right or burned out by the left. So they're there trying to find like some new liberal, beautiful vision for the future or like going back and they're conservatives. They're going to go read like Edmund Burke and the guys like Russell, all this stuff. And it's like, dude, you're not going to go find some complete beautiful theory of how you should believe in things and how things should work by reading old guys. It's like, you got to see what the changes are going on. You got to see what you can do, see who, who, who makes sense. And you got to try and, and, and work with it. And I think that the big experts, the big, government agencies, my experience with like development work and just the, these giant global entities, they are mostly writing reports about things <laughs> more than anything. And it's usually a couple years out of date the moment it comes out, right. at least. Uh, so it's just tough, man. But I agree with you. There's always, there's always like a new expert, a new layer, right? You're like, you think you got it. And I found this with China. I've been basically looking at China for over 15 years and I'll repeatedly go find something new. It's like, I had no idea about this. I, look, I had no idea about this, and it, does it fit into my theory? Does it fit into everything? And you always got to kind of question it. Um, but that's kind of the thing I've learned is that all of our theories are usually pretty weak, and they, like the people who are most wedded to their theories, they often like crumble when it when it collapses. Like they're like, oh no, I thought the world worked like this. Pfft, no, it doesn't work like this, and then they just don't know what to do. Uh, you really just got if you just keep punching at it, and you keep trying to figure out what works if your stuff keeps failing, like the pieces, what remains will be really useful. And I think it works the same with podcasting and everything. Like if you just keep, if you just keep listening, you keep working at it. Um, you'll suddenly find yourself more feeling more informed than way more people than you expected. Uh, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, I think too, you, you mentioned the experts a couple of times and I, I don't know if I picked yeah. it up from somewhere or I'm sure I did. Um, but I always like to say the experts are always wrong. If you give them enough time. Because, you know, <laughs> you get another layer true. of information, you know, you, you learn some more things or yeah, I, I use the example a lot of times too, where, you know, it's like, um, I don't know if you do follow like skateboarding or anything as like Tony Hawk, everyone knows, everyone pretty much knows who Tony Hawk is when he landed the first like 900, 
it was like this massive thing and he broke like i don't know like 20 different bones in his body trying to do it well now the 900 is just eh, that's a good trick but there's so yeah. much more than that because it's that you have that foundation that's built and then somebody else figures the next piece out and figures the next piece out and to think that one person can figure it all out and have all the answers well it's kind of silly to expect that of anybody or even yourself so it's it's interesting you, you mentioned you know sometimes these things just fall apart naturally because we just can't build put the pieces on it you know properly yeah yeah we got to build off of them like you're saying like we got to you know build you got to build off of you know tony hawk doing the last trick and then add your thing to it get it a little better than you know the guys who see you and look up to you they add a little bit to it and i think that's the way it works but do you guys get the sense that there's like sort of the lines of communication up to like you know guys 15 years older than you 30 years older than you feels a, a bit like these these are being cut in a way like it used to be you'd be in an organization you'd see the guys who were 10 years older than you'd be like following up in their footsteps blah 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 i'm just noticing a lot of um, not just guys, but just thinking of guys, like there's these mentor figures, these people who you're seeing what they're doing. You're like, oh, I can do that. I'm going to add my own thing. Outside of sports and stuff like that, it's it's harder to find. So I think it's a real challenge to actually get that sort of progress. Like I've just noticed it with journalism. Like I'm very skeptical and uh, I don't know, critical of a lot of journalism these days. I think that we're losing like all the great like foreign correspondents who went all around the world and gained a lot of knowledge about things, they're no longer training people or instructing people who are 10 years younger than them. Like by 2025, we're no longer going to have a smart group of international journalists who've seen things and they're not working on theories. They're working on what they've actually seen and what worked and what's changed and what's failed. We're going to lose that completely probably within five years. So it's going to be really hard to even get good information about the world. Like you're not going to know where to even go. Uh, so it's a bit of a freaky thing when, I, when I'm thinking about it. Do, do you have any thoughts on why that is? Because I have a lot of thoughts on why people could think that is. But do yeah. you have any you know personal views on why yeah. that communication line is getting broken down? Well, to use the, the journal, I mean, to go with the journalist thing, um, then I'll kind of broaden back out to that. But like the whole industry is so messed up. Like st the same stuff that let you get global supply chains and stuff, really it let you run a media business from a garage or from a small you know from a small office you don't need like people all over the world like stationed on the ground they don't have to be there suddenly you could just fax things then you could email things and so suddenly you just need less and less people and suddenly you could just look at what all the other journalists are saying you just go on twitter and like that's what journalists do now they go on twitter and see what other journalists are saying and say their little piece on it retweet it um, that's news <laughs> yeah and that's news or you go see articles it's like wow like look at all these tweets in this article it's like <laughs> yeah. that's amazing it's, yeah. it's, it's how it's changed yeah I'm, um, I'm allowed on twitter you, you should not be we should not be quoting people like that <laughs> yeah right uh and then broader it just it seems like there's a lot more isolation in the world right i mean i think in, in general things are becoming more siloed people are becoming more siloed friend groups are more siloed um, like i've noticed younger kids younger guys they're all on discord have you, have you heard about this like during the pandemic guys started playing video games and they all were in a discord it's like a video a group video an audio channel they kind of had all their friends in and they're just they basically live in this discord with their tribe <laughs> and they'll all be playing different video games some will be playing this some will be playing that they don't go they, like you couldn't go anywhere or do anything during the pandemic so you were just kind of online seeing what they were up to and like talking to them while they played their game and you played yours so there's this uh, sense of like i don't know tribal isolation mm -hmm. i think that's part of it and then, yeah, the, the lines of 
I don't know, it's like there used to be elders and stuff, right? There used to be groups of elders, used to have wide sets of uncles and stuff, and now we, we just don't have that anymore. I think that the more, the less corporate people become, the more people feel like, oh, I can't really advance in these companies. I'm just going from one company to another. I'm not, I'm not really, you know, it's unclear how much I'm developing my skills, what are my skills, or, you know, whatever the, the, the feeling is. Um, you just, you lose a sense of respect or uh, appreciation for kind of guys above you or guys ahead of you or older than you. And it's just hard to build connections with them. Like, where do you even do it these days, right? You used to do it at work. You used to do it, like, random groups and stuff. It's like, well, soon we're all just going to be in our little video game channels. And no one's going to talk to anyone unless you're, like, you know, getting headshots in the game or whatever. Right, unless it's, what, is that, the, was it Ready Player One? Where they all was live. Was that good? I don't know. Was that, was that when they all live in the, basically everyone's just, like, living in this game? That's that's the, like, the yeah. real um, you, you, think, know, you think part of that is just Zuckerberg's like not- on that now. That's his whole thing. The metaverse. He's like, that's Facebook. We're going to be the metaverse company. I'm just like, dude, does he ever realize how it, everything he says ends up creepy? Like, he, like he never manages creepy. to like align it. Well, I've made the joke before that he was like, if aliens were like try to recreate humans, he was like one of the, the beginning like stages where it was like, <laughs> no, we, we know we can tell Zuckerberg. You're not really human. <laughs> we're still experimenting. Yeah. Like we haven't got that gene manipulation. Yeah, exactly. Right there yet. I mean, do exactly. you, I, th- I think I've seen a lot of that. We've talked about that too, with technology and, uh, and s- social media and different things. And cause that was one thing that we started this because it was the pandemic and social media and people were just losing their minds. And it yeah. just kind of really hit us that we kind of talked, we, we started out playing music and, Nice. We so we had some of the equipment, and um, we talked about <laughs> doing podcasts and whatnot. And it was like you know we just started realizing that people just didn't talk anymore. There was no yeah. interaction or communicate like real communication, like you know 160 characters or whatever it is on Twitter. Like that's not communication. That's I don't even know what that is. It's terrible. It's like a Sunday comic. That's about as good as it gets. Um, yeah. It's funny because you know technology has given us you know what we believe to be this extraordinary amount of communication between people. But I think it's, it's, we've kind of seen, I kind of agree where we've almost lost that communication because it's, we're sitting there playing video games or, you know, whatever, there's something, you know, even doing, like I said, most of our stuff is live. We do a couple, you know, across like this, which is nice because we can kind of feel like we're sitting across the table from each other, but you still lose just, just a little piece of, you know, humanity, whatever it is. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Maybe we've, we're losing more and more of that. And Zuckerberg can take his metaverse and oof, that's, yeah. that might be the downfall yeah. of us all. Yeah. He's basically saying, here, I'll take it all. You know, that, that's what it sounds like. I'm going to take it all from you guys. It's like, don't worry. You're going to be in the, you're going to be in a virtual reality world, but really you're going to lose all vestiges of human communication and contact. Um, yeah. I definitely could see that being the case, but I think you're right too. We are like, I heard a great word someone was using to describe kind of this stuff, like podcasting and stuff, is parasocial. Parasocial means like, um, that kind of, it's like, it's not quite social. It's like a, you, you listen in on a conversation because it has the sense that you're back, like, in a normal conversation with, 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 a friend, with friends or something. Stuff you don't, you don't often get. Like, right. what I actually started doing during the pandemic was just calling a couple friends. Like, I had, like, long conversations. Um, not with a video chat because I, I usually don't, I can't, like, it feels forced or something. So I would yeah. like wander around while talking to people, like looking up at the streets and I talk for like a couple hours to friends I've had for a while. You mean phones um, still actually make phone calls? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. 
I've actually had to start to do any work. I have to like leave my phone in in the other room. I, I don't even, I can't even have it on me. It's just I don't know if you guys notice that where it's just it's so, it's like it wants to do everything for you at all times. It wants you to always be interacting with it. It's I don't know. I find it like painful at times. It's a simulation, Tony. <laughs> it's plugged into us. No, I totally agree. It, so, um, and I, I think all of this kind of ties into, uh, you know, the the China thing where we are so isolated here, and I find a lot of people. Obviously, I live in Ohio, um, which is you know geographically very different, but you know the normal everyday person, even I can see it on Twitter, wherever they're at. Like, I feel like we're just so out of touch with reality. Like you talked about, just we need to find somebody that's, you know, in touch with reality, whatever that means anymore. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but what is this kind of stuff, you know, from all the things that, cause some of the conversations I've listened to, you have way over my head. Um, <laughs> because they're just so in depth and I, and I love that. But What's something you know? What are some things about like the China, the relationships that we have with them, and, and internationally, just relationships with other countries and whatnot? That y- you kind of feel like maybe that everyday person is is kind of glossing over or missing that you should be going, hey, this is what you should be paying attention to, and this is why because this is important for your everyday yeah. life. Yeah. So. Most of the stuff about China, I, like what I like to say is that I've had every thought people have had about China about it's going to take over the world. It's going to be, there's going to be a, a great red menace is going to sweep the land. Like they're going to knock out Japan. They're going to take everything. We're going to just be like, they're weird. We're going to sell them soybeans and, you know, some corn and they're going to build everything. And we're going, we're going to the, to the, you know, to our doom or whatever. I've kind of had all these thoughts. That's kind of what I like to say. Like, it's not the perspective I've had is from many years of turmoil of trying to find out what what's really going on and trying to like I said touch myself with get in touch with actual reality because it's hard to do um, it's really hard to do but yeah, what I would always tell people to keep in mind is that China's history is a very dark and brutal thing uh, you can you can go look oh there's all these dynasties there's all this stuff yeah most of Chinese history is serious unrelenting violence and chaos and so my little one-liner that I like to say which uh, I, it's, it's so accurate, it's been ominous, but accurate. That in China, in Chinese history, the options have typically been like tyranny or chaos. That's basically been it. So when you look at the Chinese government and they're doing heinous things, heinous, brutal, Machiavellian things all the time, their fear always is that if they don't do this, it won't be enough, that things are going to fall to shit, to massive, into, 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 it's going to crumble into terrible, violent pieces. And that's what they're worried about. So everything, really everything they're doing, you kind of look at it from this frame. The reason they have crazy wild infrastructure everywhere, they have crazy bridges, crazy roads, crazy trains, crazy ports, crazy airports, is because they feel like if it's not, if we don't do it to the T, if we don't go 10x what other people are doing, it's it won't be enough. That's always the worry. And they're not wrong. <laughs> they're not wrong. If they didn't do this, it would be real, real problems. And that's what you always got to remember. So China, often what they're doing is just anything possible to keep things together. And all the things we were kind of talking about at the beginning about how things are changing, the structures, the institutions we built that no one knows how to replace are disappearing, kind of breaking apart. None of this is good for China. 
China's only come together in the way it has since the late 1970s when it joined into the U.S. system, the U.S. system right? Uh, what's his name? Um, Nixon went there. Things got a little better. And China, and Mao, di Mao died. <laughs> and then they kind of could start trying to integrate into modern the modern world. Um, but it is a dicey thing. It's not like like a a great a great thing to think about is like the U.S. We were talking about how the U.S. is kind of a powerful country. Well, it's been really powerful since like the 1880s. It was the largest food producer, largest consumer market, largest industrial power. It had the largest transportation system. It's had like it's been superlative and all this stuff for a very long time, like 140 years. Uh, that's not. China. China, no, almost no empire in Chinese history has ever lasted that long. It, it typically lasts like a couple decades before things start to just get out of control. So that's something I'd always keep in mind. When China looks like it's doing terrible things in Hong Kong, it looks like it's basically crushing this city, which it is, to you know make it an indistinguishable part of the great faceless Chinese uh, communist state, which it is. They, um, they're, they're not doing that because they want to crush any kind of Hong Kong, they're doing it because they're worried that, hey, you know, if this little city starts acting up here, well, there's 12 other cities, 20, 30, 40, all around it, just like it, that might do the same thing. And the Communist Party is 95 million people, about. The country, like we said, is 1.4 billion people. When things get out of control, you cannot stop it. It, it is a runaway train. Um, I mean, you could have millions, like just, just imagine millions, like we had, so Black Lives Matter protests in the U.S. were small. They were basically a couple tens of thousands at most. At, and it, was, it was very small in the end. Things in China, what do you do when millions of people start, you, you lose all capacity to um, even uh, impact the situation. And so what's really crazy is the COVID stuff. The, co the first couple of podcasts I, I did kind of talk about this. The, the COVID response that China did, it wasn't actually a public health response. This, is, this was their internal security systems they'd been building in case of an insurrection, is what they actually used to build to do their lockdowns. That's what this was. And so you saw insane things. We saw AI being, we saw surveillance technology, we saw facial recognition, we saw total control of people's movements, we saw neighborhood monitoring, we saw people's, <laughs> basically their apartment buildings just lock them in, like digital lock, oh, sorry, you're locked in, you're not allowed to leave your you're quarantined. We saw total monitoring of everyone's mo uh, movement, communications, everything. Like all the stuff they'd been using in Xinjiang, all these other places to basically control restive, poorly assimilated, recently conquered peoples. It, they're using what's becoming widespread in China. So that's that's always the frame I like to keep people with. It's like China's not, they, they want to conquer the world or whatever. They want to make sure their, their country doesn't crumble into pieces. That's 100% the right perspective to take. It doesn't mean it's not threatening. It doesn't mean it's not going to do terrible things. It doesn't mean it's not a worry in many ways. But it, you got to remember, it. it's just a very different place. Like it, the U.S. able to go invade Afghanistan, able to go invade Vietnam. Like China's just trying to get Taiwan, which is like 100, you know, 100 miles off the coast. It's just a very different country with different capabilities and stuff. And I just feel like that gets really lost in this whole debate that this place is... You know, it's it's a it's a dictatorship that's trying to prevent everything from turning into chaos, mostly. So there's a couple of things there that, you know, it seems like there's just so, like you said, there's so many people, and to be able to control, you know, those that many people, do you think that's partially the the reason? Well, two things. Maybe you can talk on this one first, and then, you know, a lot of people look at China. And they say this is this, this communist you know, regime that controls all these things. And 
and whatnot, but they also have some sort of like capitalist like encouragement to their businesses and maybe we can go back to this because i'm I'm kind of curious as to how their (laughs) the whole economic system kind of works because i've always kind of made a joke where it was like china's communists over their companies but like the u.s the the companies are communists over the government like the the, Mm. it seems like the corporations like run the government and here and in china the government runs the corporations um little reverse thing there but do you think it, that's one reason why they have so many restrictions on their internet type things and what they allow into the country because they're just trying to keep everything from falling apart? And yeah, in addition to that, um, you know, I've heard people say that like maybe the United States is getting too big and we need to kind of just split it up like hmm. peacefully and into different because it's just getting so different and so hard to run. And then you take that and you blow it up into something like China, it's just exactly bigger geographically <laughs> and people. Is that kind of why it, it, they are just the way they are? Because it's like, we're just trying to keep it all together. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just, I'll start with the first one, which is just about how does this pseudo, apparently communist place, how do they have all these billionaires? <laughs> how do they right. have all these giant companies, right? So I'm actually doing a, a podcast episode about this because it's maybe the most common question I've been asked. And I want to find a way to say it simply and kind of clearly. Uh, so I'll try that right now, too, and see if it works. Um, but the way to think about it is just it's a one-party state is the easiest way. Forget communism for a second. Forget capitalism. This is a one-party state, a one, you know, modern version of a dictator. You can't have a, just a dictator. You need, like, a whole party around him at this point. You know, it's a dictator, one-party state. And that's the way to think about it. Like, what I actually like to tell people is that most likely, let's say the communists had, hadn't won in 1949. They'd lost. It was the nationalists. Uh, it probably would have ended up a dictatorship, too. Spoiler, right? The, the, these things are about the country itself. It's not about the ideology. It's particularly heinous and gruesome, a lot of things they did for the because you know, they were communists. But the, a lot of communism is really just kind of a, a form of Chinese nationalism, right? Like China was never a nation for thousands of years. It was like a, basically a, a culture, a civilization, something like that. There's a lot of people who say, yeah, that China's not really a nation state. It's more of a civilization, something like that. And something like that is pretty true. But this question of like, how do you make a this civilization work in the modern world? Not only as like a nation, like you know the U.S. or whatever, but in this economy that we have. So, what basically happened is you had a one-party state that used money from uh, basically exports in the southern ports. Basically, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of ports in China. They're mostly in southern China, and this is where all the like you know jade and all these other things were sold out of. Cop, you know, all, all the the pottery and all that kind of stuff just came out of these ports for hundreds of years, and they basically used that money to invest back in the country, and they started building all this stuff. Uh, back in the seventies, like right now, you think, oh, you know, the Communist Party's not really around. What we're actually seeing is the Communist Party's like making a comeback. So this is the creepy stuff you guys will probably find just horrifying. But basically, in China, every every group of more like of more than like ten or fifteen people has a Communist Party member, like inserted in it, if that makes sense. So if you go to Cleveland, you see a big multi-tenant story in your you know, building in your downtown region, that there would be a party official, a party, you know, secretary, bureaucrat, whatever, embedded in that building that would be like monitoring all of the different tenants and all the different contracts and stuff. They're just inserted into everything. That was how life was in the 70s, before you know, all these changes, before they integrated with the US and they started using money, they started 
basically having an interface with the rest of the world where nobody wants to deal with your random communist bureaucrat and, and everything, they started to pull all this back. Uh, and it just sort of, like you said, it, you had a one-party state, but you were able to create the space for all these businesses to develop because there's no other way they were, it was going to happen. So they kind of pulled all this stuff back, focused on investment, focused on building bridges and all this different stuff and enhancing the military and all this. But they let a lot of the, the natural capitalism, just inter the natural sort of productive behavior, interface with the rest of the world in kind of normal businesses, right? You had the overarching state that all these businesses kind of pulled the, um, the Communist Party back. Well, that, that, that shows over. Uh, every major, like, every major business in China is being heavily, I don't know, redwashed, I guess you could say. It's being heavily redwashed. Like, it's, it's being just, it's getting communist officials everywhere. They're basically trying to take credit for all the changes in China. They're like, well, we can't say we rejuvenate the great Chinese nation if uh, the, <laughs> you know, no one can see us, <laughs> right. right, if we're in the shadows. So they're moving, they're moving back into the forefront of it. And it's like the, the thing with China is that it's a very explaining the, the political economy of China is a bit tough, like you said, because it's so big and it's, it's very contradictory in a lot of ways. It's like state capitalism is a good phrase. It's like that, that seems weird. <laughs> right. um, but that, that is how things work. And the only reason it works, this is a good thing to keep in mind. The only reason this bizarre construction you have of like state capitalist yet wealthy yet is able to buy stuff from all around the world. It has all these things, you know, this only worked because it's part of this global system that's, that's functioning. I guess is the way I think about it. China would never have been able to develop if it had had to just rely on China. You couldn't if you couldn't sell to the rest of the world to foreign consumers, right. they would never have gotten the money to develop anything. And so what they did is they loaned off of all this money, and then they started they got into debt, but they were able to keep growing, so they were able to pay off the debt, and they had added more debt, and they were able to keep growing. And that was the story. Like it seemed like China for a long time had endless money. Uh, it doesn't anymore, but that was kind of the feeling basically through the end of the financial crisis. Till maybe 2015, when it became really clear that uh, the things in China had had gone sour, had gone bad, much for the worse, that was kind of what was driving things. You had this interface with the rest of the world. You had this communist one-party state that was able to direct things and basically copy. Like you were able to, like it wasn't actually innovating in a lot of things. It was literally just, you know, the U.S. has NASA. Let's copy NASA. You know, the U.S. has you know a giant rail network. Let's copy that. Fran you know a freight rail network, and the Europe has a great passenger rail network, let's copy that. You're able to copy all these other systems around the world and kind of try and integrate it with the little unique features of China. The problem really comes when you're in the 2020s now. What do you do when you need to innovate and you need, to need, you need new systems? You need to find out what really works for you and can the government sort of lead on all these things that haven't been done? Like it's easy to have a five-year plan where you're saying, we're going to do what they did. Right. <laughs> we're going to do what they did. <laughs> yeah. We're going we're gonna to do what they did. It's like they just did that. Let's do that. Like, um, it's very different when you're you have all these crises that no one can help you with, except except you. So, things are things are weird. So that's that's the first question you asked. And then the second one, what was your the other so, question you were uh, well, asking about? I'll, I'll actually, I'm, I don't, I don't know. I forgot now too. Uh, okay. uh, but I'll ask good. another question on top of that. <laughs> um, so, do you think that's why they still try to play semi nice ish with their kind of capitalism with? You know, so we they allow these people to make millions and billions of dollars over there, so they keep on feeding the country. Whereas, you know, a lot of times, you have you know using the other kind of scary monster in the closet from the U.S. perspective or everyday person perspective is like Russia. Like Putin is like yeah. somebody. It's pretty clear that he just kind of makes it happen sooner or later. Like you're gone, but like. 
over in China, they had the, uh, I can't remember the guy's name now, the, he's been in the news, the billionaire. So the Alibaba guy? Or, oh. Or, yeah, like, Jack Ma. Jack Ma, yes. Jack Ma? So, like, Jack Ma. He, he says some things they don't like, and he kind of, like, disappears for a while. And they're like, well, where, <laughs> where'd he go? Exactly. But then he comes back. So it's like, oh, okay, so they're like, we still need you to make a bunch of money for us, so we're not going to kill you, but, yeah. hey, you need re-educated. Is that kind of like they're – so they, yeah. they're trying to ride that line of we want your money, but keep your mouth shut. <laughs> There's definitely a tension because they're trying to – they want all these to be productive companies, and they want the world to not – they want to not look like a basically totalitarian dictatorship to the world, right? I'm no one's going to trust you. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? They're not, they're not succeeding on a lot of these fronts anymore. Like a lot of the, the veneer of China kind of broke apart over the last two, three years. That's so pretty clear. Um, but yeah, they, they're basically forcing all of the major businessmen in China to kowtow to the government, right? And again, the reason is they, like you said, you said it well the earlier on. You're like, you know, it seems like in the U.S. the government, the companies run the government, and in China, the government makes damn sure the companies know that the government runs China, right. and that's what they're doing. They're basically all these major tech leaders. They're all being forced to kowtow to the government to, you know, put put their money into businesses into their charities and to say that you know we support the government to join the Communist Party. All of them are actually becoming behind the scenes of becoming uh, Communist Party members if they're already not already. And yeah, they're they're for sure trying to reassert control over the entire, um, particularly the tech sector. And even weirder, they're actually nationalizing data, if that makes sense. Like the same way like sort of land and labor and capital in China, they're all state assets. Data, your data is now a state asset as well. They're basically forcing the equivalent of Google to build, you know, joint, public, I guess you could say government and joint government uh, and corporate databases where the government can basically suck the data, any data they want out of their systems. So it's a creepy thing. So in, in the U.S. we have like corporate control of Google controls YouTube. All these other companies control the internet and what we can say. In China, the government controls what you can say. That's the, that's a real big division like between the U.S. and China right now. We, we don't like hate the government for it's like controlling our speech. We hate you know, companies for doing it. Uh, mostly in China, it's like you're like if I texted you, wow, you know, Xi Jinping looks like a uh, he looks like Winnie the Pooh. You know, like our, my text would just be deleted, like it would just disappear, and then I'd probably get a knock on the door like that night. That's kind of how that would happen. Uh, I feel it sounds like that's coming one day. They just say, that. <laughs> "Is that why you're not welcome back in China?" Did you text that? <laughs> yeah. I'm just playing. I just mass I just mass group text of like Winnie the Pooh memes, <laughs> and it's just like, oh no, it's it's over. Is that, don't. Is that the is that the image they used to like, like make fun of him? Is is that like a? Yeah, no. There was there's a little thing for a while, but Winnie the Pooh. They someone said he looked like Winnie the Pooh, and they just did mass <laughs> censorship of that. Like it just it gets ridiculous. But they're scared. They're they're so scared of like, well, you know, are we losing authority? Are we losing respect? Like it ends up really pathetic. It's like, you know, any guy you meet, particularly, who's like just always worried about, you know, do I look good? Am I do I have authority? Like do people respecting me? It's like. No, nah, dude, you look weird and anxious and tense and nervous. <laughs> like, that's, that's what I'm seeing right now. I'm not no respect anymore. It just looks kind of weird. Um, yeah, so that's 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 what's th where things are going in China. It's getting increasingly creepy. Uh, like every every couple of months, it gets creepier. And a good thing for people to keep in mind, like anyone listening about China, is that they're always propaganda. There's a pub, quote publicity department at the top level of the Chinese government, which forever has been was the propaganda department. It was literally called the propaganda department. <laughs> Um, they changed it, and I think it was like the 90s, probably, because they're like, uh, again, the rest of the world doesn't want 
to hear about our propaganda department. It doesn't look uh, okay, um, but it's a propaganda department. And the government is always trying to massage the opinions, thoughts, feelings, beliefs of particularly the, the, the Chinese people. So propaganda is an essential part of any Chinese government, any Chinese state. It is, it is you, again, you have to r rule the people. Like so broad, it's kind of one of those broader things like China is a place where you kind of typically economics wise, you don't, you don't need to look crazy stuff about economics, but one of the great things to learn is like land, labor, and capital were the three major things that helped define like whether you get wealthy, whether you don't. And in China, they have bad land. They have a lot of land, but they have a lot of bad land. And they have, uh, they have limited capital. They didn't actually develop all that much money. So the reason that you need money coming into the southern ports is because China doesn't naturally develop, doesn't have as much capital as something like Germany or the United States. But what China always has, has, has always had basically for over 2,000 years, is a lot, a lot of labor. Like the way you build a Great Wall is you send millions of people into the desert to build the Great Wall. You, when you need to build a port, you send millions of people. When you need to build, when you have so many people that you need to just keep building, you do a Belt and Road Initiative to send your people all over the world to keep building all this stuff. Like they are constantly keeping their people busy and they don't, because they don't want them to say, go on a long walk together down you know, to, to the, the neighbor yeah the thing and then at the same time you keep them busy and then you also you you control what they think i mean it's just the only way to do it like again this is like it's so foreign to us where we're like more individualist beliefs that we have in the u.s but in china you're worried about re rebellion i mean the, the people are both the greatest resource in the country because it lets you build everything china had the largest workforce in human history from the 90s to today. And they used it to build a crazy society, like 600 major cities, over 100 with a million people. Crazy stuff, like in our lifetime, they did all that. Um, at the same time, you can't have the people stop and you can't have them stop and think, especially. Like right. neither, that doesn't go together. Um, and that's that major challenge. It's both the gravest threat to Chinese, to China is, is the Chinese people. Not because they're like mean or anything, it's just that things, like we said, they don't, they don't come together well in that country. And you have to, you need the government to try and, you know, force the pieces to, to stay together. And it's usually a kind of outbreaks, like the number of like peasant rebellions back in the day in China is like almost incalculable. It was like all the time. But there's always a rebellion somewhere all the time. And what technology lets you do, what all of these crazy surveillance technologies are doing is they are making possible forms of social control and population control that no one's ever seen and that the Chinese government has never seen. So... Pretty clearly, starting in like 2015, China started investing in like uh, like a 21st century police state, ver some version of that, rather than like, oh, we're going to like take over the world. Like that they pretty clearly started putting all of their money into like, hey, how do we manage the coming chaos more than like, how do we, you know, seize the, the reins of the future or whatever. But the propaganda keeps saying that. The propaganda keeps saying, everything's going to be great. We're, we're taking over all these industries. We're doing this. We're doing that. But they're, again, they're trying to convince their people of these things. They're like trying to convince the people they're going to be great while using all of their money to really <laughs> just control people to think that. Like It's very, very creepy and bizarre, but What's, that's kind of what's going that on. That sounds kind of similar to, from my understanding of how like North Korea works, where it's like, hey, we're the greatest nation in the world, but the only reason they can say that is because their people don't know any different, because they're completely locked off from the rest of the world. And it's, yeah. obviously China's not quite as bad because, you know, you can get internet in China. Um, you know, maybe only half of it, but <laughs> it, it just seems like that's the, the control on the people is just, it. it's really 
mind blowing to I don't think a lot of people here understand that in how that works and they they can't comprehend it because it's you know we've lived in this place that there is not a whole lot of other places like it in the world how yeah they it you know the citizens are just kind of left to kind of roam about as you please and and now there people are realizing oh we left all these people just roam around the nation do whatever they wanted buy a bunch of guns and now the government's like uh oh like <laughs> We maybe we should control our citizens a little more. It just seems like it's that it's every government kind of leans that once they realize they get big enough, and then the people are realizing what's going on, the yeah. money they're wasting, and then the government's like, "Uh oh, we got to figure out ways to control people." And I think that's an interesting point that you would think the more connection, in one hand, the more connections and the more knowledge and ability to reach people that you never would have the opportunity to interact with that allows people to more freely think and, and more do things on an individual level. But I never really thought about the technology being used as a tool to be able to kind of corral everybody and still allow them to think it's like free range cattle. Well, there's still a fence out yeah. there. They may not realize it because they have enough grass to, to feed on, but there's a fence out there. So you think the area is big enough that you don't realize you're still fenced in until, mm -hmm. you know, you start pushing against the boundaries. It's, it's kind of scary. <laughs> yeah. The, the, one of the weird things about China is that on the ground, like you actually have a lot of freedoms, if that makes sense. Like, cause it's just too many people. Like you can't actually like you could, you know, well now they're using a social credit system to try and incentivize all these micro behaviors to make you do everything right another very creepy thing. Um, but yeah, typically like, let's say in the 2000s, early 2000s, like you could go like pee in the street and do all sorts of things. Like no one would, that wasn't what they're worried about. They're really worried about like the political stuff, the stuff that hits it like political authority. That's where like the red lines come down hard on you. But it is definitely true. Like that connection to North Korea too. North Korea copied China. That's like, that's what this was originally. Like Mount Early. <laughs> Early Mao's China. Well, a crazy thing. I mean, I've said this before, but basically, early so Maoist China, early communist China, could have easily ended up looking like the dick the I don't know what is it dynasty basically we have in in Korea, but we killed Mao's son in the Korean War, so that kind of nipped that in the bud. Um, but there's a strong possibility that things could have ended up like kind of could have had a Mao dynasty in China. Um, it's like it would have made so much sense that's what china's always had right and they didn't actually have a model for like government like china doesn't know how to transition power between leaders right so let's say xi jinping died boom had a heart attack right now there would be a massive scramble to take over like it would probably be coup d'etats and all this kind of stuff like there's only been one power transition since 1949 that was you know relatively normal stable everything else like xi jinping has been purging people like you wouldn't believe, just literally purging like that. The the the, um, the way I say that China transitions power. Actually, in a podcast episode, I never put out, but uh, I call it a basically a blessing and a and a purge. That's kind of how they do it. You basically you get blessed by like a group of elders, like weird party elders, and then you say thanks for the blessing, and you go purge everyone who could have challenged you. That's basically how it happens in China. It's pretty pretty bizarre. Um, but now we'll see. The Xi Jinping probably wants to stay in power for another five, maybe ten years. Because they're, they're again, they're not. He's not doing this because he wants to be Mr. Dictatorship. He was doing this because he thinks we have real problems. We need like 
I don't, if we go through another power transition, we'd switch governments, we might end up in a place where we're weak, vulnerable, because you have to consolidate power again and again. Um, it's a weird thing. Like, you know, right now, if Biden died, well, you, you get Kamala Harris or whatever, like, it wouldn't, it'd be like, people would be upset. People would think, hey, you, you plan to die so you could make her president. Like, that's, <laughs> like, that's what a lot of people say. Like, you totally knew you were going to die and you, you wanted to give her, you wanted to give her to us, uh, you know, as, as, a, as a goodbye present from this world or something. Uh, you son you know, of a bitch. But the, but, yeah, I know. But the government would just, you know, it would keep on. People would be pissed off and all this kind of stuff. But right. it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be like, uh-oh, like, scramble, you know, like, just, just like, just, it's, I don't need like a battle royale, basically. Right, like you see a lot, what's happening in a lot of countries, I mean, right now, around the world. Yeah. You know. Cuba, you know, Haiti, um, you just see all this kind of stuff happening. And it's sad. I mean, I, I personally believe like this decade is going to be a pretty brutal one, like for us, for like economic reasons and stuff, but also for re the rest of the world, just like keeping it together. You know what I mean? Yeah. COVID has been hitting places hard, well, that's real hard. I, I spent the almost the entirety of last year since COVID. Everyone's like, oh, I can't wait to get rid of 2020. And I'm like, hmm. <laughs> I don't think 2021 oh, yeah. is going to be much better. <laughs> like, yeah. we're, we're in it. We're in it for the long haul. Like, yeah. Like this guy, I was talking to a friend of mine. He was like, I get this feeling like the, like a shoe, like the hammer is about to drop, like a shoe is about to fall or whatever it is. Like he just felt like something, not a pandemic, but like now we're all tense. Like we got a little bit of psychosocial dread or something. Like we just feel like, I don't know. There's something, there's a real tense thing. And so I agree with you, man. I, I've been thinking for a while. This is, this was just the start of a, a, another miserably like a rolling series of miserable crises or fun crisis. i mean you gotta, you gotta keep a comic aspect to this stuff like go crazy otherwise um but yeah it's not going back to normal 2020 is gone 2019 is gone it's it's not coming back um actually I had a crazy this is totally off topic but the i had a haircut recently and the girl the lady was kicking with my hair she was like she has a, a client who is a, a therapist i guess and she was telling me how she, this therapist is booked to like the end of the year. This was like a couple of a month or two. Ago. She was like, I, she was like booked out of her mind. And she's cutting my hair and she's like, you know, the one thing she said, it was so insightful. She's like, what's happened to people is like when the pandemic ended, everybody, according to this therapist, she was saying that the people who are struggling the most are the ones who like, they got out of it and they're like looking for 2019 They're looking for, you know, go back to what they were doing. But really it was a moment where we were supposed to evolve. Like you were supposed to evolve. And it's the people who try to go back to the world that was that, are struggling the most that's who's filling up her clinic you know till the end of the year and it might be the same for countries you know it's there's not going there's no going back it's going to be the ones it's the ones who evolve or the ones who aren't going to there's no therapist for for your country like if you if that thing falls apart you just you just fall apart you can't go to uh i don't know big daddy freud ain't going to help you with this one yeah <laughs> um i don't this is another since you brought up an off-topic thing i'm going to bring up another off-topic name to connect with that have you ever heard of randall carlson yeah, I have. Oh, yes. Um, but he, so he talks about, you know, global cataclysms and asteroids yeah. and events and different ice ages and whatnot. Um, but uh, I, I, I kind of find it interesting to think about, you know, through the stages of human history and civilization, like there are times where, you know, like you said like things change and they, they don't go back, you know, whether it be for good or bad or, you know, uh, an asteroid comes and s smacks your continent and guess what? You're back into the stone age instantly, you know, different things that have gone, you know, through history. It's like, yeah. so this obviously isn't quite that bad, but you know, with the talk of like climate change and everything else, like sometimes like we, we forget because we live such short lives 
that you know a hundred years to us seems pretty decent but on a global scale on the earth scale like that's it's nothing it's a blink of an eye so if you have something that happens big during you know your lifespan you you know we might be witnessing that next little small you know industrial revolution connected to like the the internet now the technology revolution where obviously completely different than that but like in the last 20 years things have changed so dramatically that you know it's you know an exciting time to be alive and have fun yeah. while you're doing it we're here right so like yeah you got you got to be in it you got to be in the game you can't be trying to pull yourself out and say oh no it's go back it's not going back um i mean i think that, that what we're seeing is probably the it's, it's going to be a big political shakeup. It's going to be like the 1940s. It's going to be like when the world was reconfigured. Not to sound super intense about things, but like when the Soviet Union fell in, the, in 1990, 1991, the, you know, that should have been a wake-up call that things needed to change. But we didn't. We kept everything on autopilot. That's what we, that's what everything, oh, we, we summoned NATO to go fight with us in Afghanistan. Really? 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 <laughs> that, 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 that's what we're doing these days? Um, none of that stuff, none of that stuff works. And this is you know it's it's coming to a head so th- things are for sure going to change and as for Randall Carson man like I think that's very cool like the all the stuff about Egypt and the pyramids and stuff um the book I I knew I liked the, this guy <laughs> yeah, yeah. Graham the Hancock book. and yeah and John yeah, well, Anthony book, West yeah yeah totally well it's like the the book the the book the China Ravel book that I've been doing I, I start back when China was nothing right to describe really like how it grew and you know and it's funny I basically say at one point I'm like yeah I'm only going to do like the this recent agricultural revolution thing like i'm not gonna you know if i didn't want to say like oh maybe there were cycles of stuff happening before but it's just like we're not gonna talk about that um but yeah so no i I think it's it's very cool and trying to get that deep perspective is really key like anything we can do to like expand our the window right like we just we're so stuck not even in like the last couple years we'll be stuck like on doom scrolling on instagram about what someone did later this earlier in the day we you know we got to expand that kind of the the t- you know the the window of time we're looking at because it just gives us perspective otherwise we're just going to be kind of leafs in the wind and it's not a good time to be a leaf in the wind if things are you know if the, if the storm is here you know what i mean Ooh, i like that although that, that kind of sounds that kind of sounds like a, a QAnon yeah, thing you though. might want to write storm that. oh no yeah <laughs> no, i was just i just like to say i was just say you should write that down yeah don't oh, yeah. yeah don't mention QAnon. <laughs> QAnon. take it I, I have i have a nice poetic turn of phrase i'm like god damn it q you, you stole you ruined it for me no one's, everyone's gonna think like yeah, everyone's gonna think you're crazy now. Um, well, I think it's really, yeah. I think it's a really good point of of realizing the time frame. We had one of our guests um, actually bias. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a histo map. Switch, switch to your camera because yeah. you can see it through that camera. So I have it on the back of the door. Um, so it's like it's kind of it's it, it's you can't see the whole thing, but it's four thousand years of like world history and like power. So each like color is like a different like you know the Roman Empire different blocks of people and it shows us all the way down right. you can't see all the way down at the bottom is um the united states and it's like this tiny little right. section um but the interesting thing that all the way on i don't know which side it is but that you see that red section that goes all the way down yeah that's the like that the, china that's china right so they were like so, there the whole time so you can switch it back now, but yeah it's just One, really interesting to kind of like think about the whole time frame of yeah like, think about where you're living and all the things that have happened and yeah, I got an interesting cut on that. One thing I'd always tell, I always you know want people to keep in mind is like the when you look at ancient powers because uh, there's a lot of like old economic series, all these things that I don't agree with. Like 
before the industrial revolution, like it's really good to think like the agrarian era, like the era of agriculture, like 95% of everyone everywhere in any country was doing agriculture. That world sucked and no one was a real power. Like no one was, no one was a real power, like anything like you kind of see today. And like, cause I, I really dislike these old things that'll be like, hey, look at the GDP of like ancient India and China. It was 70% of the world. It's like, dude, these were, just, they just happen to have a lot more extremely poor peasant farmers living hand to mouth. Right. That's not wealth in any way anyone agrees with. So I've always had a thing with that, but I agree. Like the history of to look at the, the full sweep of history is really important. Um, and we don't get it. We don't get like our historians, I, don't wanna, I always sound like I'm hating on everything, but like the historians these days are such specialists in everything. Like there are guys who know like an insane amount about like a, one century in the Ming dynasty for to use China as an example. It's like, bro, are you serious? You know what I mean? It's like, it's like that's, that's not what we need. We don't need the specialists. We need to find something that gives us the full sweep of, of, to give us context. Otherwise we don't get context. We just get like details that we drown in, which I can't, I don't know, I can't stand that stuff. Yeah. But, it- that's that's another wild thing too that because i think the more obviously we talked about the more and more you learn the more and more you know information you have at your disposable dispo, disposable disposal you know you you can kind of dive in and get kind of stuck in that rut and we, you know, i've yeah. heard discussions with you know whether it be doctors obviously through the last year when they're you're looking at virologists and all these different you know topics yeah. where you have these experts in this one particular thing well that's great but you know particularly dealing with people, people are not one particular thing. You know, we are an array of things, whether it be our health or our psyche or whatever it is, you know, you can't just, you know, drill down on one thing and say, this is it. Cause I'm an expert in this and this is it. Well, if you don't have some of that information from all these other aspects, then maybe you're not seeing the full picture and maybe, yeah, yeah you might be on that one particular thing. You might be right, but how much, how does it affect all these other things and how the, yeah. all these other things affect that? And I think that's, you know, people are losing a lot of that. Definitely. I think it's safer to be in your niche. You know what I mean? I think it's like there's something comfortable about it. You can just be the absolute master of like 15th century French like cutlery or something. It's like I know everything about the forks and knives of like the <laughs> French aristocrats or something. Like that's the kind of stuff you, you get. But I mean, it's like I was saying, like the 1970s, maybe something happened with complexity. We got too much information. Like, it's very easy to just hear new information, just get overwhelmed. Uh, and I think that's, you know, we're, we're fighting against that in some sense. Like, we're trying to find what we can, the information we can manageably handle, um, which just seems like it's less and less in a lot of ways. Like, I mean, when I talk about China and stuff, like, talk about, you know, trade and then and geography and history and, and all this stuff, it's, it's a lot. And then China itself is like so big. It's like that just, just you know, it's like someone was actually telling me that the it was actually a famous Instagram sort of person, not famous, famous as in they have a lot of people. They're not. No one actually knows who they are. Um, but she was just saying how like the the likes, the amount of likes or whatever, like it doesn't feel real. It just feels like a number. Like you don't actually think that there is like thirty thousand people that liked it. It was like the number is thirty thousand. That's kind of what it feels like. You know what I mean? Like you can't actually process that. You've never had like. 30,000 people smile at you at once. You know what I mean? Like you can't actually <laughs> yeah. see that or so you can't actually like, you know, see, it doesn't make sense. Right. Even when you're in a, you know, a performer, you hear people clapping. It's like, it's like the audience is clapping. You don't hear like, you Each know, every person, individual right. person. It's like your brain can't do it. Um, so there's something similar with all these masses of information. Like it's just, it can feel like really tough 
to to put it together. I mean, that's kind of why I, like people have different opinions. But someone like Joe Rogan, who's actually going and talking to all these different people and listening and trying to integrate it and just continue to do it. If you just keep doing it, you actually learn a lot. And you you know you don't have theories, but you're putting information together. Like what I really dislike is how like the the overly educated world we live in thinks that you need to like learn these discrete bodies of knowledge and like you have physics and you have this and you have this and you have this and you kind of put the pieces together. It doesn't work like that. You just keep, you keep learning things. You know what I mean? Like that's how it actually happens. Like what I've just noticed, I mean, I just being, I'd say overeducated and the people I've met, like the more edu, there's a limit where you get too educated. These people lose the ability to think for themselves, to challenge any of the constraints or the, the ways things are thought about in whatever field they're doing. And they become, usually pretty complacent and also pretty conservative about the, what they're trying to do. It's like, dude, you used to love this thing. You, now, you know, now you're just kind of doing it to do it and doing it because you did it. It's very bizarre um, and dangerous. Yeah, it almost feels, because I, I totally agree with you. And you see these people that have, have all this knowledge and know all these things, but then like as soon as they're challenged on one point, it's they – they they try not to make it look like it, but it's just, they seem flustered that it's yeah. Oh, you can't challenge me because I'm educated and I and I know about this thing. I'm the expert at this thing. Like, because this is this isn't how it is because this isn't how it's been. Like, I I always hate I I say it a lot too that um, you know, I ask like, well, why do why do we do this thing a certain way? Why do we do it this way? Well, because that's the way yeah. we do it. Well, no, that's not that's not good enough answer. Like, just because it's always <laughs> been done a certain way, like me. Okay, maybe we've forgotten why we did it that way. But if our answer yeah, right. is because this is the way it's always been done, oof, that's you're falling in dangerous territory there. If you don't know why you're <laughs> yeah. doing something, and it's you know, like, why do we stone heretics? I mean, Granddaddy did it. Like, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> they've been stoning heretics as long as I've been born. <laughs> yeah, like we need to think about these things sometimes. <laughs> um, so you know, you, you touched on a lot, obviously, but you know, one of the things I kind of hear you saying is. Um, and I'm really good at assuming and because that's what I do. I just throw it out there until someone proves me wrong or not proves me wrong, but um, corrects me because that's how I learned too. So <laughs> might as well. Um, one of the things I feel like I hear you saying is that, you know, China's maybe not as dangerous as, you know, some people would lead us to believe. It's not, you know, that the boogeyman, the closet that's, you know, they're going to come and invade the United States and do these certain things because they're just too busy trying to survive over by themselves. Um, do you think that is kind of another tool that's used by politicians and different things to kind of say, hey, we need to do this or that because <laughs> China's out there. They're going to get us. I mean, I, I do agree that it would be nice to have some more manufacturing and things and, you know, yeah. so we can take care of ourselves a little bit more than what we do. But do yeah. you think that's just kind of one of those talking points that's used? China right now, China is being totally used by all politicians to convince people that we need to do X, Y, Z, whatever it is. We need to go to the moon because China's going to the moon. We need to do this. We need to do that. We need to do that. like, so China's becoming the, nemesis that motivates us to perform it's like the person we're trying to compete against right if you don't know I, i've used this i've said this a couple times just in some podcasts like i feel like it's easy like who you want to compete with yourself right you want to be better than you were yesterday or you were before um but if you can't do that if you don't quite know how to get better you just find someone to compete against it's like much easier in a sense we did that with versus the soviet union um and we're, we even got obsessed with japan in the late 80s uh and we're totally doing that with china now 
So politicians are definitely using it like explicitly. They've started using China maybe in the last like five, six years. But you should probably expect that. Like whenever you're seeing news like, oh, China this, we have to do X, Y, Z because of China. Um, that's, that's definitely a part of it. And then, yeah, to the question of like, is China a threat? China is a threat to a lot of countries. Uh, but is it a threat to the United States? Like the chance like, that they'll invade the United States is like, I want to say zero. It's like it's pretty close to zero. That is a very hard thing to do. And they have a lot of countries they have to pummel to get there. You know what I mean? Right. You have to probably take over, you probably have to steamroll South Korea and Japan and Taiwan and probably Vietnam and probably a few countries in Southeast Asia as well. Just just to get yourself ready to go. Um, so that's, that's tough. It's a big ocean. Um, it's, it's, it's a big ocean and China could... China could flounder just trying to get Taiwan. Like, you can mine the, the Taiwan Strait, make it almost impossible for China to conquer the island. The reason China doesn't have Taiwan as part of China is because the U.S. Navy exists and didn't allow it to. It's the only reason. Otherwise, Mao would have taken hundreds of sh ro rowboats to, to, like, thousands and thousands of rowboats they would have built across the strait, and they would have just, you know, rowed over. Um, but no, they, they, they couldn't do it because we, we exist. And that's... That's true. Like China is a real threat to Taiwan. It's a real threat to Japan, to a lot of Southeast Asian countries, um, just to Korea to some extent. Uh, but is it a threat to the United States? That's the real question. Like often what the politicians are doing. So on the left, what they do is you say, hey, we have this beautiful global order. We need to preserve and protect. So China is a threat to this order. Therefore, it's a threat to us. Right. If it threatens anyone in this whole system, it's a threat to us. That's what you get there. On the right, um, they try to say it's actually a direct threat to the United States, which is really it's kind of neither of these, right? And they're being used to manipulate you m most of the time. The left is, you know, this global system doesn't quite work anyway. It maybe needs to be reformed, maybe it needs to be fixed, whatever. But no one in the government or with any plan has a concrete way of even trying to do that. And then with the right, it's like, well, it's a great way to invest in the military, but maybe the entire force structure of the U.S. military isn't what we need. And maybe it encourages us to go invade random countries and do random things that aren't necessary. Uh, so, yeah, I would just... I would definitely be suspicious of it. But again, I think China's, you know, it's a terrifying place. Everything it's doing is terrifying, right? Like just the, all this stuff, the social controls, population controls, the military developments, all this stuff is pretty freaky. Um, so there's an emotional response we're all getting. Like everyone is, is feeling emotionally attacked <laughs> by China, especially oh with, the, with the virus, with the, with the possible lab leak, with, with all this stuff. It's, it, it just feels like it's just this oppressive endlessly oppressive sort of state and the politicians are really kind of tapping into that they feel this animus in the country it's almost bipartisan like you can both sides are, are shitting on china and so that's rare it's rare for both sides to agree <laughs> especially nowadays so, yeah. yeah yeah no yeah. so like you could expect a lot of things to to move on the china front that like you won't in other places like we it was like a hundred billion dollar bill to basically compete against china that passed that passed like nothing passes anymore so that's a surprise um, but that's kind of where things are going. Like China is a threat. We don't have a way, a good way to actually evaluate the threat. We're doing like, oh, is, is Iraq a threat to the United States? What do you mean? You know what I mean? Like, what do you even mean? Like, they, they don't do that. Um, yeah, and we don't have journalists. We don't have newspapers that we can trust that can say, they actually keep any of these conversations in check. So you just end up with like this just morass of like emotional commentary and manipulation flying in all directions. That's kind of what it is. So that's why I try and come in a little bit and try and explain a bit more what's going on. But I have a small reach. So, <laughs> yeah, well, I appreciate that. And the the way that I've heard you talk about some things with China has, you know, for what it's worth, helped my brain out to kind of 
parse some of these things out to understand like, all right, is this like all just, you know, geopolitical rhetoric or, you know, should I be concerned that now they have what four aircraft carriers or whatever it is and they're building up their military and, you know, what's going on with Taiwan? Like that seemed kind of messed up. Like that, that was odd. What about the Uyghurs? Like, that that was kind of a flash in the pan for a little bit for some people, but like, is it just because they're so big that now that's that's why we're concerned? Because there's atrocities going on around the world. Like, I mean, yeah. In my opinion, the you know, I I listened to a uh, I don't know if you ever heard of Yanmi Park. She's a North Korean no. defector. She did a uh, I talked about this on I think one of our recent episodes, but she did a uh, podcast with Lex Friedman, and it, oh cool. She's a North Korean North Korean defector. I think she moved out of North Korea when she was early teens or something like that. Um, but just her, her telling, you know, mm. her life in North Korea and what it's like and what it's actually like, it's just like, wow. Like we don't hear, there's no protests going on in, you know, New York city for, for these people. Like, well, you know, so like, where do these people, where, where do we find our battles? Where, where are these people choosing their battles? Are they, really organically choosing them and have a desire to, you know, stand up for these people? Or is it just someone goes, Oh, Hey, you guys need to be concerned about this now. And it's some kind of weird, you know, rhetoric that's just pushed on just to kind of do something, you know, some kind of weird 3d chess thing that's going on. Yeah. We're being pushed to be emotionally invested in like every conflict, but the only ones that surface are the ones that they want us to be invested in. Um, so it's, it's very, very much controlled. Like it's also weird. We, the ones we tend to pick out are the ones where you either identify with the apparent, uh, perpetrator or victim. So if you identify, if you get people to identify with the, um, yeah, the aggressor or the victim, you just sort of use that to get people's emotions, but it's all sort of emotional, you know, pushing and pulling in all these different directions. There are, you know, constant, relentless, endless tragedies going on everywhere. Um, but we, you know, you can't process all of it. And I think also there's a good humanitarian impulse. Like we want to help, you want to, you know, be informed or whatever, but it's, you know, we, like I was saying kind of earlier on, you, a lot of the development stuff we've done over the world, like there was, there's been no period in human history to try and make your country work. That's been as good as the last 75 years, zero, like not, not even close. You didn't even have a country just got eaten up by an empire period. There was no other, there's no other thing that went up that even went down. But even still, in this 75 years, you've had like a dozen countries or so that have even become high income countries. If you remove the countries that sell oil, it's even less. There's a small number of countries that can actually work and the rest of countries, unfortunately, end up with various forms of serious political, cultural, economic, military conflict and violence and stuff. That's just, that's the way, there's good reasons. I mean, there's not good reasons, there's unfortunate reasons why this is the case. And if you wanna move the needle on like all these problems in the world, it's not like, hey, like, yeah, I just remember, like, I always think of the children of Darfur for a while. That was one. It was like, where are they? They're probably still there, um, but we moved on. You know, it's like they have their own bizarre 15 minutes of fame in our sort of, like, I don't know, victim, humanitarian, media, complex, cult thing. <laughs> um, it's, it's very weird. But, yeah, and like you were saying, with the Uyghurs, with all the things in China, I think as the conflict with China gets worse, all these things that we ignored – which, by the way, we ignored them because businesses were making money. You know, we ignored Hong Kong because financial ent- entities didn't want any trouble there. Right. We ignored the Uyghurs because, 
Yeah, dude, we ignored the Uyghurs because, well, what, 80% of solar panels and the polysilicon stuff comes from China and it comes from Xinjiang. And everything in Xinjiang is infected with forced labor, basically. Um, you have, you know, you have people, a million people in re-education camps. I mean, it's, 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 a, whole, it's a horror, the whole thing. Um, but we ignored it. I mean, we've been ignoring things in China like that since it developed, right? But before you could sort of say, hey, they brought tens of millions of people out of poverty. You know, you could sort of balance the equation a little bit. You know, it used to be miserable poverty everywhere, but, you know, there's terrible things, but things are getting better, blah, blah, blah. I think the more China started to look more evil, <laughs> just straight evil, that everything's coming out. We're all now just like, no. Nah. No, you can't, you can't have people in camps. You can't be trying to take over an island. You can't be like slaughtering. Yeah, it's just all this kind of stuff. So that's what's, that's kind of what's happened, I think. Yeah. So I have, that brings me to two questions uh, that I just thought about. The second question um, is the more in depth one, uh, but it kind of goes, which I'm going to ask it kind of first. I'm going to let you know about it first. And then I'm going to ask you the first <laughs> question I was thinking of. Um, okay. The, it seems like, um, in China, obviously, it's it's massive. You know, we think about the United States as we're all one big old happy family, even if we don't <laughs> want to be, whatever. But we think about like the states really; they're just kind of broken up. But everyone kind of kind of runs things the same. It's all kind of the same if you go to state to state. Mm -hmm. But it seems like some of the different news and different outlets uh, and different laws and kind of restrictions coming out of China, like they're like it's like it's weird like region based where they're like hey this region it ha yeah. they've been imposed on these restrictions on them have been imposed and it's like well wait a minute like what about the other like 80 percent of the country like how does that like so there's some weird things but i want to get into that but the first thing kind of going back to what you're talking about um these empires i i think it was i think it was one of your podcasts i had listened to and you you, you made a, a a statement about a like historical factor something around the lines of and i'll let you if this was you but it was like it was like 66 countries around the world like something like that like celebrate their independence day from great britain <laughs> yeah that was me and it was like <laughs> what i never knew that like that's wild like it's so like what yeah. what is that like what you can just briefly touch on that because that, i found that super interesting um and then we can go forward y yeah so in a lot of ways, Britain was like the big dog empire. Like what they did, like you had to, they figured out certain things about, you know, they took advantage of certain tech, new technologies and figured out things about how global economic geography works to just, you know, take over like a quarter of the planet. And so they, they are also a naval power. So they, like Japan, think about it, like Japan's like an island dangling off the coast of Asia. Europe, I mean, uh, Great Britain is like an island dangling off the coast of, of Europe. And they, you kind of naturally become sort of naval powers you have you need to get food you need to get everything you get a maritime culture maritime economy and you build a navy sort of on top of that that's a, a common thing actually the united states has something similar we're sort of like a giant island um in north america uh, weirdly ignore ignore canada and mexico and functionally it kind of works like that um but yeah they and the great britain just went around with its navy and just invaded everything like they took all the key nodes around the world like Singapore exists because of this. It's in a perfect location for a lot of trade flows. So they took a spot there. They took Hong Kong because it's like a perfect spot if you want to manipulate trade coming in and out of the, the Pearl River Delta in southern China, one of the three sort of main regions of economic regions in China. Perfect. You take Gibraltar. It's a perfect way to get in and out of the Mediterranean Ocean. You take Buenos Aires. It's a perfect way out of the – it's just – it goes on and on and on. They, they knew what they were doing um, in a you know, Machiavellian sort of way. Right. And that – and so, yeah, so all these countries around the world – 
they, you know, get out of my country, right? I mean, that's that's what it's kind of way, the way things worked. Um, and you know what's even crazier? The U.S. has invaded all but two countries, I believe, on Earth. So we are, you know, in many ways, obviously descendants from from not just Britain, but also a lot of the policies they did. But we're a different country. We actually have a lot more internal power and capacity. So we don't need this global empire. Uh, so we we did different things, but the, our built the military style is actually very similar. Of like, get it, let me you know put <laughs> aircraft carriers up in your grill is basically what we do. <laughs> like, hey, <laughs> we're off the coast. How you doing? Like that's something like China's never done that ever. Um, it had like one brief moment where it sent treasure ships around the world, but it it didn't even have the ability to sort of do that. Um, a key thing to actually know about China, I'll get just a a brief geography thing. Remember earlier I said the southern ports. I mentioned sort of like that's where you had money. So you go Shanghai, south to Hong Kong, ports. It's like you have more ports there than basically all the rest of Southeast Asia. Kind of just geographic thing. You have the right winds. You sort of get these enclosed, sort of indented coastlines. You get deep water. You can prevent storm surges. You can develop ports. and har- You have harbors, so you can have ports. The northern China has no ports. Like for thousands of years, it never had anything all the way to Korea. There was not a single port. That means that northern China never had a maritime culture, never had a maritime economy, never had cities by the sea. Um, all of them were forced, they were created through industrialization. They, they, you know, drove steel piles into the into the seabed. They dredged out to create basically an artificial port um, there. And northern and southern China as a result, there's many other reasons, but that's a big one. They're totally different places. The way China actually developed, to get back to your earlier question about like all these different regions and how mm. things seem to be different, applied differently in China, the way China developed is northern China was a military and political power, and it conquered southern China. And it con- first the Yangtze, and then it conquered the, those southern ports, and then it conquered all the rest around it to protect itself. So China is like a, basically there's a core region about the size of Colombia, like the state of Colombia in um, South America, that's like the Yellow and Yangtze River Valleys. Everything else around that is basically a massive security belt and some little like trade ports and stuff, particularly the, the Pearl River Delta is a great one to get like luxuries and stuff in and out. Everything else is just like pr- protection. That's basically what it was. And so these regions were never developed. So you said something like 60, 66% of, you something about 66% of China um, being basically not being, having different rules and stuff. Yeah, about two thirds of the country's ruled as like an autonomous region. Basically there were, you know, recently conquered, poorly assimilated peoples that live there that we never had any intention of actually developing into like, you know, a real economy. But we needed so India didn't have control of Tibet and all of the rivers that flood and, you know, that feed China, basically, that nourish China. You also needed Xinjiang, so Russia didn't control basically the old key sort of northwestern entrance into China. Is all these sort of basically security reasons. And then when the modern world hit, you can't have permanently poor people garrisoned forever. Uh, you actually need to create an economy. So what's funny is in Xinjiang, where the Uyghurs are, right. that whole place was basically developed by paramilitary organizations. All of it. There was like military and paramilitary organizations basically developed it because it was originally just supposed to be like, you know, a Western def- you know, border against the Soviet Union, right? The Soviet Union actually was going to take over Xinjiang because it wanted uranium, r- random things there. And Mao kind of got there first. Um, but that was, that was the way things were trending. And they had to suddenly revamp this. So they rebuilt an economy based off of cheap energy, <laughs> l- lax regulations, subsidies, and forced labor. And that's how you developed modern Xinjiang, which is like, gotcha. that, that's what happened. So it's not like Xinjiang, like Xinjiang and Tibet. I mean, one thing to say about China, like these places would be poor and miserable if China wasn't there as well. Like anyone who says, oh, you know, Tibet's going to become like a, a paradise of, of monks 
and bells and beautiful flags. If no, it's just going to be a miserable place of like serfdom and poverty and monasticism or whatever. Like I'm not trying to criticize any of this stuff, but you, it's like it's the way it is. Like we have these fairy tales that like these places they were historic. They've only ever been miserably poor. I don't think China's going to actually change much of this, but it's also like you're not going to go back to something better. Like there's right. Yeah. So, so just so I can kind of my simple brain. Um, so you have, in a sense, you have this ginormous country that yeah. is started out as a kind of a, a coastline type for trade. And so that's where their economy was at. And they have all of this land around them that they don't really care about. And they said, whatever these people out here, they can just do what they want to do, whatever. Um, but then as their economy grows and other countries are looking at potentially coming in for some different resources, they go, okay, well, we need to grow our economy. We need to make, we need to find workers and find different things. And all, well, we also need to protect our border from this place. So now we're going to pay attention to these people, but these people don't necessarily want our rules or religion or whatever it is. So now they've just said, well, we actually need to use this area now and we need to use you. So we're just going to make you do whatever we want. So that's kind of the very boiled down version of kind of what happened to like the Uyghurs and what happened to these different regions. Yeah. So they, yeah, they just, you know, tried to move it from a security belt, basically a giant security belt around the country to something that's more integrated. And they, yeah, eventually they kind of had to integrate them. Uh, they're also concerned about Muslim terrorism and stuff. Uh, but again, if China could have its way, so here's a, here's a little bit of a nugget of history that's pretty brutal. The in the late 1700s, when the, the Qing Dynasty was taken over um, this region, the <laughs> the Uyghurs and the Han Chinese collaborated to genocide another people known as the Dzungars. So there was a genocide before the Geneva Conventions that happened in Xinjiang, where the Uyghurs were collaborators with the Han Chinese. And so what we're seeing now is kind of brutal. But basically, the Han Chinese just wished they had finished, you know, finished the job, I guess you could say. Like, I'm not trying to sound terrible, but the, when you have, you only have a couple options when you don't have assimilated peoples in your region. You can either kill, deport, or assimilate them, right? That, there's no other options. And places like the United States can integrate a lot of peoples. We have, you know, we're an immigrant sort of nation, settler sort of nation came from all over. You're naturally more open. No one moves to China. No one, there's no, the number of green cards for people going to China is tiny. And the number of people that want to join Chinese culture has also, you know, at least for the last 1,500 years, has been really small. So what you actually do in China is you sinicize them. You remove their cultures, move their religions, you destroy their art, you limit the use of their language, and you just sort of try and replace it all with with Chinese stuff, uh, like Chinese you know practices and pa paradigms and stuff like that. And that's a brutal process that takes like decades. Like real, I mean, you know, this is talking about the long sweep of history. Most groups are like. The French even are like, there were a lot of groups that weren't French <laughs> before you became France. This is like that, this is kind of how history works. Um, but now you can't do that anymore. You don't have the time. You kind of have to, you can't just slowly assimilate people. Like in China, there are dozens and dozens of peoples that were not Chinese that are now Chinese, you know, just over the, the millennia. That's how it goes. But you can't do that anymore. And you also can't kill them anymore because it's Cause obviously not kosher. Because people find the, out about it. <laughs> yeah, people find out about it. But people didn't find out about that that other genocide I talked about because it was just a, you know a random genocide in the 1700s or 60, I can't remember the 1600s in Central Asia it just it was a different world right. and the 
you know, a lot of things the Chinese government does feel very old, ancient, old world, like the one-child policy. All right, let's basically abort, prevent the birth of something like 300 million people to prevent things from going crazy. Basically, something like the population of the United States. That sounds like what on earth, what, where, what science fiction novel, dystopian science fiction novel are we in? But it happened. So, yeah, these things are, are brutal. And unfortunately, I kind of complicate things when you mention like the Uyghurs were collaborating or whatever. But realistically, this was hundreds of years ago. And these aren't the same people. And right. we live in a very different world. But I don't like this thing we see where every... We always want to find the, the nice victim in these stories. But I really don't think there's any group that doesn't have a moral stain associated with it. And if you go far back enough, it does. I so a, I think... Super important point. You know, and I... And it gets brought up. I think a lot of these, a lot of these points that are because they're touchy and they're difficult and to to talk about. But a lot of and it's a lot of these points are brought up by the wrong people. You know, because they, they use them as a weapon against the whatever they're getting attacked with. You know, the same kind of the, the same idea as you know the the Native American Indians that were here before Britain came over. Guess what? They were all killing each other too. Like. It's just, it, throughout history, it's this tribe against tribe. Everyone's killing each other. And we have to remember to be able to kind of separate each topic and be able to discuss each topic separately, saying, hey, just because, like you said, like just because they, you know, worked with this other group of people to, you know, genocide another group of people doesn't mean that now, 100 years later, that what's happening to them is okay. Like, there's yeah, not, this tit for, for sure. tat thing doesn't necessarily always, you know, eye for an eye. Guess what? You just end yeah. up blind, you know. <laughs> so like, it's. It, it, I think it's an important thing too for having discussions around these difficult things is being able to say, okay, let's not talk about two sep two separate things and connect them to, and talk about them together and saying it's bad or good or whatever it is. We have to be able to separate different things and talk about them on different you know platforms, as it were. Because it's it gets yeah, real muddled. It does, and I think one of the things that you know that's kind of ruled the way we think about things. We talk about colonialism and imperialism, and it's one of those things in the political world that sort of prevent us from understanding a lot of things. It's kind of like, like we we're saying, like things. You know, the world got complex. The political world got complex, and everything got blamed on colonialism and imperialism. That's kind of like our sim super simplification of things, and that's a dangerous one. That's when people like, if you want to understand stuff, you can't. You got to move um, past it. Not past it, you have to really understand how it played out specifically in each different place. You know, it's not this general abstract thing. There's just always dangerous. Anyone who's talking in really large abstractions, it's like, don't trust this guy. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to say don't trust him, but like, it's like, no one in the real world does that. You know what I mean? It's like, you're. It's like a dude presenting a PowerPoint. I, I don't know. It's it's very very suspect stuff to me. Um, but I think you're, yeah, it, it's tough. There's also just the fact that. The old world, the world, human history is not a nice thing. The way countries come together is not nice. You know, the U.S. killed a lot of Native Americans to take control of the Mississippi River Basin in particular and then push them into marginal land. And then once that marginal land also happened to have a couple other things you might want, like coal or copper or whatever, you push them to even more marginal land. I mean, that's right. what happened. And, you know, today there are about as many... Native Americans on reservations and stuff as there are Palestinians in sort of the occupied territories or in the, well, the West Bank and stuff in Israel. So there's weird parallels to these things that we, you know, we can't, you can't forget, but you also, you don't want to get 
caught up in the emotional talk about them if you really want to just sort of understand where things are going. Um, that's kind of what I'm more interested in. I'm not interested in trying to find out who is the, the moral victor and who all this kind of stuff. It's like, I want to know where things are going. I want to help people understand how to think about them better so they can navigate stuff for themselves and right. then, you know, make, you know, hopefully make things a little better. But uh, I think that's, I think that's super, super awesome. and super important to, to look at that way. You know, it's, you have to understand what's going on, what happened, the, the entire situation before you can say, okay, I have a way to fix it. Or here's an idea or even choose a side. Cause if you don't fully understand if, if you, I don't like, I'm not a fan of choosing sides. I like to live my life in the gray. Um, but to understand if you want to choose a side, well, you have to first understand what both sides are completely about. Because if you're just choosing a side, just to choose a side, well, whew, you might get into some, you know, dangerous waters yeah. there. But to understand something and then be able to go, okay, now I understand the history. Now I understand these different, or at least a little more, um, you know, understanding the relationships with China and different countries and how how these things are happening helps you to go, okay, I can see why this is bad, and you know, let's. You have to understand, I guess, how something happened in order to understand how to fix it. Um, yeah. Obviously, I don't know if we're going to fix anything, but it's people. Um, but along, attached on to that, uh, kind of the regional part in the rules and discussion um, was, you know, we've talked about um, like cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and different type of yeah. financial systems moving forward uh, on podcasts as well. And it, it was weird because when I... I still feel like I don't know anything about China. I know a lot more than I used to now, which <laughs> I appreciate, but um, it seemed like there were like sections before they just recently kind of banned it from being traded and banned miners and all those different things. Yeah. It seemed like there was like weird, like uh, rules and regulations being imposed on like different areas. It was like, Oh, this section of China, yeah. I don't remember all the details, but it was like, I see these like news articles like, Oh, this section of China is being like hit with regulations on this, that, whatever. And it was like, well, wait a minute, like they're hitting their own country with different types of regulations in different areas. Like, can, I don't know if you can talk to that at all. Yeah, totally. Like... So the Bitcoin mining was concentrated in places with cheap energy in China. So, you know, provinces like Sichuan, Shanxi, there's some that, are, that have mountains, there's a lot of mountains, you get a lot of cheap hydropower, or they have a lot of cheap coal plants, or they have, or in Xinjiang as well, they also have cheap energy and subsidies. So that was where a lot of the mining was concentrated. Not all of it, there, there was other places as well. So a lot of the regulations were just addressing those regions specifically. It wasn't anything, it was kind of just like where it had naturally concentrated. I think it was around 75% of Bitcoin mining was happening in China because of these. It's like anything else, like you can get a mass scale there. When you bring the cost low, everything right. will just used to just move to China. Um, but yeah, the Bitcoin and digital currencies and virtual currencies and blockchain technology is very interesting for China in a lot of ways. Um, I did a, a brief thing on it, but a lot of people, a good thing to keep in mind is it's kind of like you know how Facebook is banned in China? Google's basically banned in China. All these things, all the American companies are banned in China. Bitcoin is looking like it's going to have the exact same thing. It's probably going to be totally banned in China. We're already kind of seeing that, where basically anyone with a wallet, a wallet in China, they can no longer access any of the major banks. All the banks have had to like basically deplatform anyone who's associated with virtual currencies. And 
China's, you know, everyone's, oh, Bitcoin will go all around the world. Nothing's going to stop it. It's like, it's like, no, China can stop this stuff. Like, it can stop basically everything else. You don't want to be too utopian with that kind of thinking. Um, but, you know, there are certain costs. So it's going to lose out on that. But what it's trying to do is internalize all the benefits. Very Chinese kind of thing. But internalize all the benefits of, of Bitcoin, crypto, things like Ethereum uh, to basically give them greater control over their money supply and their own currency. They're trying to create, they're already doing pilot programs to have a digital yuan, which is the Chinese right. currency. And what they want to do is, again, it gives you really amazing possibilities. <laughs> the opposite of the, the sort of crypto hope and dream. It's like, it gives you even better abilities for social control of money and of people. So you can basically have, they want to create a currency where basically you could only, you know, you'd only be allowed to use it to purchase certain things, or the money would, you know, disappear, return to the government after a set time period. It'd allow you to impose all sorts of things on, like, basically turn the cash economy into something uh, way less cash-like and way more bizarrely controlled, and it would probably be really integrated with the social credit system they have, which I don't know if I mentioned, but basically they have, do you, do you know, you guys know about this social credit Not entirely. System? No, I know they have okay. one, but if you could explain it, that'd be super creepy, super <laughs> creepy. So the way it works is like, so we have a credit score, right? All the stuff you do with money and how you do, it gives you a number. China, they, they want to have a social credit score where all of the behaviors you do, whether they're, you know, basically how virtuous you are and how evil or bad, you know, mean, they add up to basically your moral number in China. Based on their rules. <laughs> Based on their so like let's say you're caught uh, jaywalking because there's cameras everywhere. Um, it just sees you. The system sees who you are, recognizes your face, and puts a basically a knock on your social credit score. How could you possibly? You're supposed to be a good citizen. Why on earth did you jaywalk? Um, and that will lower your ability to say it'll maybe prevent you from getting ch plane flights or lower increase the cost of various goods and services. Maybe your hotel room will cost more. Maybe like you won't be able to leave the country or like take foreign travel. Like all of these, all the little good consumer goods we want will all be hit if your score goes down. And if things get better, if you do everything great like a good little citizen, then they're subject or whatever you want to call it, then you get higher scores. So maybe you'll get a cheaper flight. Maybe you'll get bonuses. Maybe you'll get rebates. Maybe you'll get all this kind of stuff. But it really, they want to micro, they want incentives. They want to micro incentivize every sort of behavior the government wants. Super, it's super, super creepy. So again, if you have crypto, you can sort of marry these things together. Maybe you do something great and you get, you know, $10 from the central bank that you can use in the next 30 minutes to buy a coffee or something. It sounds like a video game. It's, not, it's right. very perverse. Um, very perverse, in my opinion. I mean, and uh, you guys agree with me, so it's not like I'm qualifying at all. It's, it's very weird to anyone who has an individual sense of self or whatever. Yeah. But in China, it has a, like we talked about earlier, I mean, they, this, they're looking at it from a very different way. They're worried about trying to make every, keep everything together. But crypto is a technology. The base technology is sort of, you can think of it like, you know, built off a bit of BitTorrent, like the same sort of Bitcoin, BitTorrent, this peer-to-peer -peer networks, decentralized capabilities. All of this just screams absolutely not to the, the Communist Party. Right. Like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? They, they have no interest in any of this. Um, they're they're scared, of, scared of it, really, in a lot of ways. Right. So, and, and you know, for, for people who don't fully understand, I, I always like to make sure to clarify that, like, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm a, I'm a Bitcoin maximalist, um, but I really like the idea of it. Um, I guess it's one of those things where I don't personally, I don't know if there is a, an idea that I like more, at least it hasn't come along yet oh, because it's, um, because in my mind, it's, it's the very opposite what you're talking about. It's completely mm -hmm. decentralized. There's nobody that at least that we right now that yeah. nobody can change it without 
everybody wanting to change it. You know, there's not, you don't have uh, Vitalik Buterin with, you know, Ethereum or whatever, being able to just create things or give things to his yeah. buddies or, you know, Forking it and all that. Yeah. And for, being able to just change it at will, or there have seen articles in different, you know, crypt, cryptocurrencies that have been paused because, Hey, we hit, there's a problem. So like they paused it and they stopped it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I like to be able to separate, you know, Bitcoin from those because it's, it is completely decentralized. There's, there's nothing that yeah. has come up that, anybody can prove that hey this can be manipulated or stopped or whatever obviously if it doesn't get adopted by people then it's worthless but if people were to adopt it it'd be like nothing we've ever seen there is no central fed bank that can print more you know and, and i just i i assumed that that was the biggest push behind them getting rid of bitcoin because they can't control it like no one can control it versus hey if we can create a, a digital yen then that's even better than a paper one because yeah. not only do you have it to is. have a bank yeah. account, you know, to to move your paper. I don't know exactly how their banking system works over there, but if if you think about it, like a, over here, like everyone has a bank account that you keep all your money in, and you have a debit card, and you can, they can see for the most part where you're spending your money. But if you get rid of cash completely, and then like you talk about, you're able to control that digital yen or dollar whatever it is and the government can just go i can see they can see exactly where it goes and a lot of people will say well you know you shouldn't be doing illegal things well maybe i just don't want the government knowing everything i buy and even scarier the fact that they go hey we don't like that you you bought this or you paid money to this person so your account is completely locked and we're going to take all your money because it's our digital dollar like that's scary like in I just saw that I assumed that that was kind of what was happening with China. It was like, hey, we're getting rid of Bitcoin because it imposes that threat of us, you know, having control over over what it is. Yeah. And then they, it seems like it's always like added on top of, but we're going to give you this digital yen and it's going to be yeah. even better and awesome. And we're going to yeah. give it to you for free until they yeah. also say, hey, we're going to take it away from you for free. Like, <laughs> it just. Yeah. I, no, I think it's I think it's right. They're scared of it, and also the more immediate problem for them was just Bitcoin was u- being used to take money out of China. It was people using it t- to take their money they earned in China and get it out. Right. That's like a bigger threat. So big, big uh, moment was in in 2015 when the basically the Chinese stock market, the Shanghai Stock Exchange, uh, had it real trouble. It you know it sank I think a third of the value. Uh, they had currency problems in China. The currency lost four percent of its value in a couple of days and. All this, the, the economic financial stuff isn't, isn't, you know, it can get, you know, it's not that important, but basically they had to spend a trillion dollars to defend their markets, defend their currency, restore, con- all those words you hear the government people say, restore confidence in the markets, all that. They had to do one of those things, okay? Spent a trillion dollars to do it. And ever since, ever since 2015, money has been flooding out of China. Any smart person, not smart person, but anyone with money in China who wants to, trying to keep that money has been trying to get it out. So we're seeing more capital flight out of China. Than, we, than human history, than anyone's ever seen in human history. Basically, the only time that compares is like the fall of the Soviet Union when oligarchs start sending their money to Malta or whatever. Um, we've just never seen, it's like a trillion dollars a year at this point. It's just, they're trying to get it out every way possible. And Bitcoin and digital currencies are like one of the best ways. Um, so law enforcement right now is really concerned that Bitcoin is basically becoming a tool for money laundering and drug dealing and terrorist financing and stuff like that, which is unfortunately true. Uh, but I personally, am, am, I believe, you know, Bitcoin, block, the blockchain technologies, I'm a, a fan of all this. Um, 
but there's like a couple problems just uh like from the well from the chinese side there's everything we just mentioned you can't get don't take your money out of china they're trying to keep all the money in right. china that they can and that's that's a real challenge to it and like like you were saying like the digital yen or whatever it is like they they will it gives them even more control than anything so why would they let bitcoin or something like that where they don't have control and they could have 10x the control it's like it's a no-brainer for them as far as they're concerned um yeah and you know the bitcoin or the sort of the crypto community is very interesting like the there's like great there's like a core great ideas like, I, I don't know i think ethereum bitcoin are very interesting very cool and then i've never seen more um like fraud and bizarre weird stuff surrounding <laughs> yeah. but probably seems like a good idea like i i see more bizarre fake clearly money grabbing like coins being printed and stuff like mm -hmm. minted like than i've seen anywhere else you know what i heard a great example it's like it's kind of like um if your sports team like your favorite sports team like you also had like a piece of the team you owned a bit of stock in the team so every time you're hyping it up like you get a bit of a win you know what I mean? Like right. you kind of have that own it. So you just see people like hyping their coin for their thing, um, which is, I don't know, I think it's getting pretty out of here. I think most of it's going to go to zero outside of like Bitcoin, Ethereum. I don't think they're going to um, survive, especially the smaller ones where they can't build the use cases. It doesn't seem likely. I mean, so just get into Bitcoin. Like I'm no I'm no expert on, on cryptocurrencies. I'm the context I know it is mostly through the context of like international trade, finance how will it work can it do these transactions how do different countries receive it how will it probably integrate how might it how might it not integrate into the world um one problem with bitcoin is it it's like the opposite of the fed the fed can print money forever that's why uh, i love federal it. bank <laughs> it's the opposite but they of the have <laughs> but they have their own problem they have a right. scarcity problem right. you can't you can't scale bitcoin probably to be to the volume you need to transact for the whole world mm. you have this other problem where you, 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 there's a, a fund, like the, the base level of, of Bitcoin can't do, you're going to need to layer something on top to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And so I think the, the, the Bitcoin community is very concerned about all this because you suddenly, you know, if you have some layer on top, maybe you're doing a little something, maybe that's not decentralized. Maybe that's controlled by people, you know, it could limit stuff. So there's, there's real tension with the, within Bitcoin to try and find out how do we deal with this? Um, Ethereum is sort of a trying to do something similar, it wants to evolve itself to have enough transaction volume to be able to do that and but like you said there's with all these crypto less so with bitcoin but with most of them you there's a you haven't fully removed yourself from like the the need for the people at the top to be like somehow moral in some way like you can't remove the total you can't make a totally dehumanized thing it's probably you know if, if it did happen it might be pretty ominous if it did happen if that makes sense like um the final result so I've just noticed that the you're not going to be able to fully remove people from the equation. Um, I don't I haven't seen one that does. I mean, I don't know. But again, it's like Bitcoin. The problem with Bitcoin is it was developed in 2008, so you know the processor speeds, even latency. You know, people had dial up and stuff back then. Like the size of things was made for a kind of a different world. Um, I don't know. I see. I could see Bitcoin, even though people don't want it. There's going to be like a conflict soon to like to make it more functional. To sort of achieve the ambitions of being more than just like a store of value to be like a, a medium of exchange so the ability to sort of do things with it to have less volatility to have less transaction cost to be able to do all that um it's going to require some sort of changes unless you want to see the field um or maybe you can just sort of be like gold i mean you guys have probably heard all this stuff before or like heard people talking about it so i won't mouth off about it too much but it's a it's a real challenge and i think that the you're gonna Bitcoin's got a real crypto's got a real challenge when the U.S. government particularly starts to think about um, 
how it wants this to play out because right. China's kind of forcing its hand right now with China going like the U.S. Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve are moving faster than anyone thought possible because China's already experimenting with digital currencies. Mm. They're very worried about, again, losing XYZ to China. China's doing it, so we have to do it. That's, that's where this story is right. um, going. And the U.S., I mean, a digital dollar, for example, because people use the dollar all over the world, like 90% of transactions in the world. If you want to buy something in China, you want to buy something anywhere from anywhere, you typically have a dollar. It goes from like a, you know, a Turkish lira to a dollar to a Chinese yuan. You know, it goes from a, a yen to a, you know, a dollar to a Mexican peso. Like you, you have the dollars, the middleman for everything. And that gives the Fed a lot of power. Like a digital dollar would make the Fed to other countries, I mean, to us as well, but to, to the rest of the world, like scary. Like there's a whole... Like the euro is actually basically a failed currency, and it's propped up by this bizarre backhand, pseudo-understood system called a euro dollar. Basically, there's sort of like uncontrolled dollars, and this all is going to sound like fairy dust. It doesn't even sound real, but it's basically like fake dollars running around in Europe that banks have on their balance sheets that are supposedly no one knows about, that the Fed doesn't control, that are still there, though. And we have to do this because otherwise their currency would kind of crumble and get into weird problems. Um, what do you do if the Fed can just like pull dollars away like it suddenly becomes I don't know I mean a digital dollar would be so like I don't know empowering for the United States it's gonna I don't know I see I see crypto really fighting a, a tough fight because what do you do if you can't trans you know move your Bitcoin back to dollars right that's a like can't pay your taxes anymore can't can't do anything yeah, maybe the government's, co <laughs> yeah. government's, government's covered for you now <laughs> yeah I think I think those are really good points because I think the obviously the biggest I think the biggest wall that crypto has is governments. Yeah. Because they realize, hey, we're being, you know, pushed out of the out of the honeypot here with our we can't we just can't do whatever we want with our money anymore because people are starting to find different ways to interact in a sense. Um and it just to to comment on the you know, some of the points you made on Bitcoin and I, I agree with you. Um I don't think my, my my guess, my view on on kind of the whole crypto scene and and Bitcoin in particular has been, um, you know, I guess I I see it like I'm looking through a window and saying, hey, like this is big, this is potentially, you know, has potential to be, you know, kind of like the next the next big thing in a sense, um, and it has yeah. all the things that I like about you know just as you know I'm not. I don't give advice on investments by any means, but like, do you know, I look at where do I want my money? Do I want to put it in a stock market that's being held up by the fed? Not really. Like, yeah, I'm going to put some there just because it's historically that's, you know, the fed will probably prop it up for quite a while. Um, you know, yeah. I don't want to just put a bunch of money in a safe because that's not going to do me any good in 10, 15 years. Cause it's all going to, you know, regardless of whoever tells you, I, inflation's happening it always has happened and it continue will continue to happen at what rate yeah. obviously i don't know um but you know it's one of these things like where do i put it and to me it was bitcoin it was kind of one of those things where it was like look this is completely decentralized i don't think it's going to be like used for currency and for trade as much even if they do have like a lightning network on top of it that yeah but it's just something somewhere to go hey this is different and i like the the foundation this has and kind of in a sense it's kind of like a um like a moral investment of hey i can believe in this in a sense that and that's yeah. kind of like my my take on it but there's definitely struggles you know absolutely yeah. um 
Yeah, I think that the, I mean, we all want to believe that there's some new technologies that are coming out that are going to make things better. You know, I, you know, it feels like, it kind of feels like you know, modernism or whatever, whatever that was. Like there was this, we became obsessed with technology sometime in like the late 19th century. We started getting electricity, we started getting all this stuff and it changed the world. Um, I'm very worried that we're not moving fast. We're not moving on, we're not investing in technologies the way we should. Um, but so I actually, I'm kind of redoing the introduction to the book right now. I talk about how basically China's history is a battle between geography and, and technology in a lot of ways. Like we were saying earlier, it has terrible land and for a lot of reasons. It has these giant deserts, it has these bad ports, it has this, you know, basically you have barbarians literally storming through all the time whenever they want. Genghis Khan rolls in and burns your capital to the ground. Great, great. Um, you, you need a technology to sort of try and move beyond this, to try and get, get to a better place. And I think that's pretty common in general. We, we do need new technologies. And it's weird, like all these technologies we have, it's like social media is like what we've got in the last 10 years. Like, great. Yeah, that's great. Like, are we, it's like, why does every tech company, they call themselves tech companies, like, really, you're making another messaging and video app? Really? Like, yeah. that's it. Like, that's, that's what we, that's what you're investing in. So I think that we need to expand the word technology to not mean um, these weird platform companies that help you share information and, and like how many texting apps do I have on my phone? Probably like nine, <laughs> 10 that, that can actually text. You know what I mean? Like Instagram can text, like WhatsApp can text. I missed the surfing thing today because uh, I don't know if I mentioned that, but I didn't get a surf take because I shut off the notifications from a random texting app that I hadn't been using for a while. It's like, <laughs> great. Uh, but yeah, no, there's these real uh, challenges with that. And I just think that we we're really limiting our, our getting we're getting blinkered. So when you want to invest in something like Bitcoin, in the sense that you're actually going to make things better and it has a potential to do that, I think it's true. I think it animated a lot of the the movement in the Bitcoin in the crypto community. It's the sense of like, hey, the financial crisis was a disaster. Bitcoin and crypto emerged as a result of like, hey, maybe we shouldn't print money all the time. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a good idea. Um, and then yeah, now we're gonna we're in the stage of like, how do we integrate these technologies? I mean, I do think you're right. There's I kind of focus more on the blockchain side of things. I like as like because I don't. I'm not as much. I mean, first of all, investing in Bitcoin is probably a really good idea. Whenever you did it, like <laughs> if you, you were saying you did some of that, so that's good. Uh, but I focus more on the on the blockchain thing just because I see how you can abstract that out, and you know, suddenly you have digital currencies, right? You have you have that kind of thing. And wh where is the inherent value going to lie, right? Like I know this great company called I think it's called Carta, Carta, something like that, where. It's the first use of like a blockchain thing that I thought was really cool. Basically, it helps startup companies. They have a new company and they want to know, everyone wants to know the piece of what they own of the company, right? You used to have to go to lawyers and have like all the stuff written out on paper and all the stuff. Now you just have like a, a digital dashboard that every person owns at once that tells everyone what it is. And when you issue new shares, it kind of just automatically readjusts everything for everyone. Everyone's all, you know, it's like, it's like oh, that makes perfect sense. It's like, that, that fits, like that's awesome. But I've rarely found anything outside of like a currency, which is, which crypto is, is doing right now. I think it's changing. I think there's a lot of stuff it's, it's going to do, especially this decade. But currency is a hard nut to crack. Like that's... Well, you're like, dealing with people's money. Like, yeah, you're dealing with people's money. You're dealing with the government's <laughs> power. It's like, yeah. good luck. Like, money, power, and pride. Like, you know? Yeah, it's like, go to China and start talking about Bitcoin. You, you might disappear like at this point. So mm. it's tough. And we'll see where it goes. But the... I get it. I mean, I wish, I, I really hope that good things come out of it, but the, the scammy stuff going on right now is ridiculous. Yeah. I saw something called PogCoin that just came out. They're trying to sell you, it's trying to be a meme coin that you use to like make money to sell your memes. I'm like, 
what are you talking about? <laughs> hey, Dogecoin like, made uh, a lot of people money for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like uh, we live in a like I don't know meme a meme economy in a lot of ways. Like, oh yeah, stocks can be memes. You can just bet on GameStop or whatever. Um, it's getting weird it's, with this stuff. It's the next hot weird. thing. Um, well, it looks like your construction is starting. They were peering in the window behind you. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. I don't know if they're well. One or us, I mean. We, we're, we're good. We can okay, keep going. I wasn't, I wasn't sure. Um, no, no, no. If, if like uh, sort of a bunch of like Spanish music starts playing, then we'll know that maybe it doesn't work. But I think we could keep, we'll just keep going. <laughs> See as long as, as long as we want. Yeah. Um, well, I did have around that too. You're talking about um, kind of the information and how things are kind of influenced, you know, in between nations. And so I mentioned it like I feel like we're really I don't know if insulated is the right word Um, that might be too nice of a word for some some people in the United States because we have so much access to stuff but I feel like there is some sort a level of insulation that we have as citizens here and you think that's like from what's going on around the world. Um, you know, do you think that's more like you talked about the, the lack of journalism or do you think there's some kind of, it's, it's intended to kind of keep us insulated. So, you know, the, the, the more, cause the more insulated people get the, you know, obviously we talked about North Korea and different things, the, the less they're likely to kind of make an uproar about and try to make things different because they think everything's just hunky dory or whatever. Do you think that's kind of incidental or do you think that's by design i think a lot of the insulation for the u.s comes from the fact that we really don't need a lot of the things other countries so we're pretty self-sufficient with agriculture we I mean, here's a little stat i mean china's basically been experiencing famine basically every year every other year for over two thousand years like we were talking about with the land like they can't it's very difficult even to produce food the u.s the mainland u.s has never experienced famine ever not during the depression not during any time so that's a big thing. We also now are pretty self-sufficient in energy due to the shale revolution. Uh, and the way things are going with renewable energy, the U.S. is very well positioned to do well with that as well. And then we don't have major political conflicts with other nations in our own kind of region. We instead go get up in everyone else's grill around the world. Uh, so we don't have those problems. And I think that it really makes us insulated. And I think that some of the reason maybe we see all these humanitarian impulses, all, oh, we need to care about this group or this group or this other group. I think a big reason a lot of this happens is because we're trying to deal with this very real insulation that we have from the world. We're trying to find a way like, you know, we this idea that we're going to sit here while the world burns and kind of be okay, I think doesn't sit well with some people on an instinctual level. You know what I mean? Um, you know, you guys chilling in Ohio and China could be crumbling into pieces. Um, like there's a, there'd be some troubles or whatever, but that can really happen. And I think that there's, we don't know how to process that, but the insulation I think is actually structural. I think it's actually the fact that the U.S. doesn't need things from other people. So we built this large, I mean, people always, I, I don't believe the U.S. is an empire for multiple reasons, but the great, the great world system we built after 1945 wasn't meant to enrich the United States. We basically opened up our market to the rest of the world is a lot of what happened. We let Europe sell stuff to us. We let Japan sell stuff to us so they could get money to rebuild their countries. We gave money to Europe. We let China, again, sell stuff to us. That's huge. I mean, it's like, who's the, you know, who's the buyer the buyer and the seller, right? So the, the buyer's giving them the money, <laughs> they kind of on a basic level. Um, 
And that's the way things worked. And the U.S. is kind of burned out with this whole relationship with the world right now. I don't think people like where that went. Uh, just it feels like with a you know, burned out, sort of deindustrialized places in this country. I think there's a lot of real, real problems with it. But the U.S. is going to come out okay in a lot of this stuff, I believe. And the other places might not. So this insulation, I think, is really, uh, it's a real emotional, psychological sort of thing. Like, there's a lot of guys who are like, let it burn at this point, or people. A lot of don't care. We didn't fix Iraq. We didn't fix Afghanistan. We didn't fix uh, Vietnam. We didn't fix anything. We didn't fix Kosovo. We literally haven't fixed anything. Let it burn. Um, maybe not the best perspective. <laughs> maybe it's a little, little, little brutal. Um, but you know, we, we can't fix everything. But I guess we just don't know what to do. Like, because we're also we get the sense that if we're just going to be social media meme lords for the rest of our lives, like, what are we doing at the, here? Why are we even okay? Like, maybe we do need some real crisis in this country if that's what we're being pushed to. So we need to be motivated to do more impactful things, to make new technologies that make things better, that uh, give people new forms of interaction, more forms of meaning and purpose and communication instead of these bizarrely siloed lives we're all living uh, that are just a, a draining. I mean, this idea that we're all going to be like, okay, like happily, you know, kind of functioning even as other things in the world kind of go, go to shit and that we're going to be doing absolutely nothing with this time uh, is pretty striking. Um, I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but just talking to people about how they, what they did and went through th during the pandemic, like you were talking about processing a generational event. Remember you were saying that you were like mm -hmm. saying, Hey, like this is a big moment. Like I know guys who, who went back to playing World of Warcraft. That was what they did during the pandemic. Like it was like, you know, it's a, it, it's a tough thing. I mean, I think a lot of us just don't know what to do and we're, we're reaching out trying to find, find a way to do it because sometimes when we're left to our own devices, we just like, regress to childhood or something or like you know like play games until like 3 a.m and your brain hurts and your eyes are red and like bloody and you're like okay i can go to sleep like <laughs> it's not the way to do it probably right so i for for someone that i guess understands so much history around different countries and these you know these kind of crumbling um fortresses as it were um you, you sound oddly optimistic about america um because yeah. now is it do you think are we just getting a lot of fear-mongering pushed through i'm the, i don't even want to say the media because that's been a, yeah. a whole shit show in itself but do you think that there is that fear-mongering just because they want to put a little fear in like the the citizens to go hey we need to get up and do something or, you know, cause you let something stagnate for a long enough, it's going to turn to shit. But do you think that's designed like that? Or is it just, you know, Hey, we're, we, we're going to be just fine because of X, Y, and Z, all the things you've talked about, how, where we're located and just geography, like in the world, like our country's going to be fine just because of that. I mean, it's a good, it's a good foundation. It's a really good foundation to have that stuff. Most countries don't have it. Um, but things can go to, to shit really easy. So I, I lived for a while in Argentina and I, you know, Argentina is actually the country on earth most like the United States. So if anyone, any conservative person tells you we're going to become Venezuela, no, that's a lie. That's wrong. That doesn't count. It's just, just messing with you. They're trying to get, get in, you know, right. force, uh, you'd have certain thoughts. But if there is a country we could be like, it would be Argentina. So you ever want to go research a country or whatever, it's, it's an interesting one. Um, so you can, and Argentina is like the classic case for a country that can have almost everything it needs and still screw it up. Uh, 
it's, 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 it's remarkable what they've accomplished on that front. And it's a very weird thing. You'll go and you see like beautiful old, you know, they have a building that kind of looks like the Capitol building, you know, for the legislative, you know, for the Congress over there. And it's like a beautiful old kind of looks like ours, but it's just totally crumbling, like physically, like it's not well maintained and it's, they never keep it put together. And all around the country, you see stuff like that. You just see these things that are crumbling from a time when things worked better. And then, you know, you had social problems in the country. And so the inability to get, get together, get things done, the kind of... Uh, let things degenerate and it turned into a bit of a mess. Um, so I just say that because it's not just the geography. I mean, it's, you can, if we all just make memes all day long, like nothing can save us, nothing can stop it, what's coming, right? Um, but there's, there are a lot of things that, that go well. So yeah, I am optimistic about the United States and I've done pretty in-depth, like the first chapter of my book is actually like a huge comparison of the US and China. It's like my little cheat code. I'm like, hey guys, I'm gonna go through a lot of Chinese history, but to whet your appetite, I'm gonna like, you know, give you what you really want, like to see that first. Um, we'll see if I actually... didn't read before. <laughs> yeah, the, the TLD. <laughs> yeah, at the end. Yeah, exactly. Because um, yeah, you really want to know about your own country. And I think that's that's kind of what we're what I'm trying to get at with it. But the yeah the uh, the U.S. has a lot of a really a lot of strengths, and it's hard to remember that when we have such a dysfunctional, useless, incompetent government constantly um, basically fighting for attention. I think that's a great way to think about what the government and the media and everyone is trying to do. They're really just fighting for attention at this point. And the emotional fear-mongering, the, all the you know, uh, you know, victimization, all the, the, the sense, sensationalism, all the sentimentality, all of it is just because that's what gets you. Like you, you're, you're, it, you're driven by your emotions to what you view and what you, you look at, right? So that's where I think a lot of it's coming from. It's just like literally in the moment, like when you do the crazy, you make a crazy face and you give a crazy tone and a crazy story to just keep person's attention. That's kind of what I, I see uh, a lot of going on, um, which is pathetic, right? You think, damn, like that's that's the extent of where we're, how we're operating. But it's true. And I think the good thing about the U.S. is that the strength of the country doesn't come from the government sort of methodically implementing plans, right? Like that's not how things ha ever happen in the U.S., except for briefly during World War II and afterwards, which we all valorize because it's a big moment, big things happen, but that's probably not coming back. Our government is just, the competence of government just objectively has declined since like the 1930s. Like in the 1930s, you had like rich, you had like the, the all the super well-educated like aristocrats of the country, they go to Yale, they go to Harvard, they go to Oxford, they go all over, and they would like want to work in the federal government, right? Because it was like the new, it was a new great thing. It felt powerful. It felt useful. It was like a, all these new agencies were being created. They need expertise. They need this, and they were able to you know try all sorts of things. You know, by the 1970s, this has all crumbled. I mean, what you get in government agencies is like I just tried to play tennis yesterday at a, a recreation center in in, a, in LA, and you know, an old lady, an old lady came out, and she was like a very classic, classic sort of government worker. Where she's like, you actually have to pay after 7 p.m. So me and my friend, we just we ended up leaving, just like. So object, like, I'm not going to pay for a tennis court. That felt ridiculous. But it felt like she came out and it was like her moment. It was like, yeah, she's done this forever. She's co constantly tells people that they can't play tennis at this time. And she's just going to kind of do that forever. And anyone who's worked with government or been involved in government procurement stuff for like contracts for anything. The reason every government website looks like it's eight to ten years old is because it was designed. It <laughs> yeah, it's like. They, had, they they sent out like a, a you know a RFP. It's like here, a request for proposals of like a, you know a digital system. And it took them three years to make a decision, and they had to you know had to be a you know mature design. So they used like two year old technology, and then they got a two year approval process, and they finally built it out. It's like eight to ten years later. It's like yes, you literally have ten year old stuff. Um, so that has made everything in the government just when we now live in digital software driven world, all the rapid iteration that you get 
in any other organization doesn't happen there. So that's made these problems of competence even worse. And you end up getting people who just want a pension in most government agencies. And then at the top, you get political figures like, you know, the president appoints all these people who go do something for like two years. It looks good, burnishes their resume or whatever, and then they bounce. And there's no continuity of anything. And presidents might just, you know, this is the federal agencies we're talking about, like they might just change the priorities. Like, all right, you had Bush, you know, and then he wanted something and they did everything to do that. And then then Obama comes and he wants to change everything they planned. It's like, okay, then you get Trump. It's literally like you don't get, you're not implementing things consistently, right? And so there's benefits to like political stability. Like our government doesn't break down, but like it just doesn't, it just doesn't function well. It's kind of designed not to function well. It's designed so it, you don't have a, you know, tyrannical system. You just have people that are, you know, attacking each other all the time. Um, you, you, you don't get, you know, you don't get tyrannical control. You just get kind of like pathetic, incompetent stuff. Right. And the real the real strength in the country comes from, I mean, objectively, I think it comes from a lot of private enterprises that are able to do it. You have new, the ability to acquire, there's a lot of capital running around, sloshing around the country. You just need ideas, will, um, you know, dedication and execution. You can sort of create a lot of things. And you obviously government support, government money and all that can be helpful, but you're, more and more things have been pushed to the private sector for bad reasons and for good ones. But one of them is like, you can't maintain any of these government policies and programs in the way you would need. Like in China, you have a five-year plan every five years and it comes out and they try and just methodically do what they're going to say they're going to do in it. And it's easy, you know, to do, but the government, the U.S. government doesn't know what the U.S. needs. Like it doesn't know. I mean, it has a bunch of people lobbying to say, hey, you need, we need a lot of solar panels. Okay. Uh, what if all of them are built in China? Okay. Right. Do we, is that what we really need? Um, you know, what if building all the solar panels, you basically don't get a lot of jobs. You just get installation jobs. They're just brief construction jobs. Once you build them out, that's gone. Is that what we really need? Is it, was that energy then or is it jobs? I mean, all these things will just conflict and, and get into a whole mess. Um, but yeah, getting back to the optimistic thing, the, there's a lot of people all around the world who want to come to the US. So I worked in sort of immigration, sort of global labor flows for, and stuff for a while. And everyone wants to come to the US and right. you get constant high-skilled labor you have everyone wants to put, put their money in the US. You get constant flows of capital from around the world, in addition to what you already have in the country. And then, I mean, the real question, you know, like I already said, you have great land. I mean, you need technology development. Obviously, you need like better culture. I mean, hopefully it's not just memes and like a decadent youth cult <laughs> forever. And that's it. Like, okay, it's like we have like, <laughs> yeah, it's like you, you need more. Um, but they're, they're serious strengths. I mean, it's really just getting people to like take advantage of like the historical possibilities of this moment because it's huge um but we're caught up in stuff and it's hard to know where we want to actually go like i think we need something like the government to give us a bit of direction give us a sense of like hey we can you know go to the moon uh i think great visionary leaders in business try and do that they say hey i you know i want to go you know we're going to go to mars or whatever use elon musk or whatever that's motivating i mean we need kind of like we touched on earlier we need these we, we don't have those sort of chains of sort of admiration going up to look at other people um, like 10 years older than us that we want. There one sec. Hey, sorry, I'm still going. Sorry. Um, uh, yeah, I probably should end soon. But uh, the, the, yeah, the, the getting the ability to actually motivate people at this level consistently and over a long period is a major challenge. And the only place you can sort of see it is in private enterprise where you have this you know, people, if, if you get, I mean, you have the other problem of like financialization, you might have to go quarter to quarter. You actually can't push these things. You get very short-term thinking. So I don't know, I kind of 
you can get there's all these different sides to it, but you do need you need to find that place. You need to find the space to kind of create it. Um, uh, it's just as soon I mean as soon as possible because we do have real problems that are coming. We have the potential to solve a lot of them. We just have a major sense of stagnation, stasis, right. and degeneration that we got to fight. Right, and I think you touched on it talking about the government. You know, there's so many exchanges of people. So how do you expect to get anything done really on that going back to the, the grand scale of the people and the size of in four years as a president? So, you know, that's the, you know, the, the argument for a dictatorship or longer terms and different things is, hey, the only time a president can get it really anything done is like the second year in office. Other than that, his first One year, bill. yeah, his, like his first year, he's just getting in. The second year is basically his only shot. And the next two years, he's worried about getting reelected. And that's that's basically what it boils down to. So it's you have so many moving parts, um, and it it goes back to maybe the corporations running the government. There's a lot that can go wrong there. Um, but on the other hand, if you have a dictatorship or you know a, a government that runs everything else, that's obviously as we can see not so great either. But uh, yeah, I guess that's the problems of. The, the the world we live in it's either that or we run around and we kill each other and take land from each other and that's how we else we survive that's because that's what we've been so it's you know maybe it's not great but it's a little better but uh you know what i am hearing you say though is we shouldn't be all too worried because everyone wants to come here and work um we got good land and China's really just trying to keep itself afloat so we shouldn't have to worry about them you know bringing giant ships across the ocean to, you know, invade us unless Tony, they're the ones behind all the UAPs. Um, <laughs> but what I hear you say it is, you which know, might be possible by the way. Oh, oh, well, yeah. maybe we can let you go. We can, we can talk about that next time. Cause I'd love to yeah. have you back on, um, but we can wrap this up, but I, I, I appreciate the, uh, the knowledge and, you know, it's given me a different perspective that I never would have or thought of having. So it's really neat. Um, keep us updated on the book. Uh, when that comes out, would love to have you back on. Um, and obviously I would like to pick up a copy. Um, is there a timeline for that? Do you, are you looking yeah, at? Yeah, it should be. I'm looking like probably March of next year. God willing. Uh, and doesn't fucking drag on forever. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no. So I, I, I'd love, I'd love to come back on. It was a lot of fun. I think I, next time if we do it, I'll, I'll give myself more time uh, for sure. Because you guys, um, you know, you, you say you're not not the price, but you're actually willing to go much deeper, and you're 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 learning, and you're you're thinking a lot more than people I've interacted with before. Hey, I'm curious. So, <laughs> <else>. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's it's like um, it's it's awesome. Really, it really is awesome. Yeah. So well, I, I love if fun. the book's not coming out till March, then maybe we can do it again, and you know, in a little while or whatever. Hit, yeah hit me up there's a lot of topics man i mean the, the chat yeah, thing just go like there's like we we kind of try to give a 30 view from thirty thousand feet for a bit right um but we didn't even touch in like maybe you know, what does it look like if they want to actually conquer taiwan which is like the most likely military you don't want to worry about china ever doing anything on the military side for sure taiwan that's the first step. that's like the whole military is geared towards conquering taiwan that's what it's designed for right. um at the moment so yeah, that's real. And then I think just the last thing you said, like China is that, you know, when we want to, so the reason I, I emphasize the private enterprise thing is because, not because I'm enamored with it in any way, I think actually what we know is capitalism is going to evolve seriously in the next couple of decades for a lot of reasons. And just another thing, 
anyone who's trying to think about politics and what's going on right now, what we should all be doing is taking the best ideas from the left, the best ideas from the right, or at least what seems good to us, and just moving with them. No, no, no one who's really looking at the world is saying, hey, I need to like get the fully conservative perspective and like march with that through the world or the fully liberal one. It's not, that's not what we need. Um, it's not, it's going to work either. So I think that that's a big, that's a big thing. And just in the, again, the reason I focused on the private enterprise is because China is showing us where things are leading on the state side of things. Uh, you're not going to, I mean, there's great potential for all sorts of innovative, smart government stuff, but the most likely thing when we look at the current sort of people that go into government and they're probably going to continue to do so, not because they're bad people or anything, it's like you, you see rigid control being the, the way thing, the norm. And that's getting increasingly dystopian as the new technologies are kind of filtering into the world. So I'm very wary of that. And uh, yeah, I mean, ho hopefully this was fun for you guys and informative. I, I definitely enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate it. And uh, like I said, we'll keep in touch and Definitely Hopefully talk to you again soon. So thanks, Jason. You're right. Thank you. Um, real quick before you leave, um, I typically give a T-shirt to our guests, um, and I'd love to send you one if you would, want. So if you want to yeah. check out the website, and then if you just want to shoot me an email of what shirt you'd want and color and size and address, and I'll get one out to you. Okay. So oh, I should, should I give a little plug for the, the stuff where people can find me? I should probably add that. Oh yeah. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, well, I'll, just, I'll make sure to put well, it all cool in the thi thing. But you're on Twitter, right? And yeah, and there's one cool thing I think I've been I've realized I'm going to do at the end of the year. Which I, I've been meaning to tell people this at the end of podcasts is I'm thinking of doing probably. Well, you guys are getting here about it first. It'll probably just be free. But I'm going to try and create a course that a digital thing that would ex give people the tools to see the world more as it is. You know what I mean? I'm just talking about how there's no journalism, there's no this, and there's no that. And you got, I, hope, I hope you guys enjoy talking to me, but it's a bit much to talk to anyone who's like trying to be Mr. Expert on anything. I don't like, you know what I mean? It's, it's a bit tough. I think the better thing is to try and give people the frameworks to not to know everything, everything, but to get the basics. Because the, the basics of this stuff is super, not, it's not crazy hard. Um, so I'm trying to create a course that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create one that will try and explain the basics of, of the land, the geography, the money, and how things happen, how countries develop the way they do. You know, where money is, where money isn't, where cultures form, how they split, where languages appear, why they split. Uh, this kind of stuff is is, is, cru is is cool and kind of crucial to learn when you're not going to be able to rely on people. So if you guys are interested or if any of your listeners are interested, um, I guess shoot me an email or something because probably later October or November, um, again, depending on the book, uh, you don't – the revising part of a book is no fun. Um, but, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have something. And I'm just going to start doing that because I, I think that I'd love – I love to inform people, but I'd love the sense of giving, having people go away knowing that they, they have a handle on more of what this is. Whether you want to know where you should be moving in the U.S., maybe which regions of the U.S. should you be looking at for the long term. It's kind of there's similar principles about you know which countries. It's just a different scale. So yeah, if any, if you guys or anyone else interested, that would be that's something I'm getting up to later in the year. It's the only kind of like random thing I'd want to plug. Yeah, absolutely. Keep me posted, and then I'll I'll make sure to. Um I can throw all your, your – because I know you got a website. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'll throw that all in the show description so it will be all linked there and people will be able to find cool. you and um, keep us posted. Looking Definitely. forward to it. And it was cool. We, I think we went for like two hours. I got a, I'm got getting into a little trouble because I'm supposed to be like helping lay out some concrete and stuff, right, and put where the pavers are. <laughs> and I pushed everything back a bit. So I probably should go. Yeah. But well, let's keep in touch yeah, and we'll awesome. schedule something maybe Definitely. sooner and rather I'm going to get a shirt for sure. I like your shirt. Is it going to be that one? 
there there's or, a couple there's a couple designs on okay. there but it's that's okay. one of them so let me know just shoot sure. me an email definitely cool all right guys well this is great we'll keep in touch for sure yeah Take sounds care. good thanks jason all right later thank you for hanging out with us on this episode appreciated as always and if you have any questions comments ideas or guest suggestions leave them in the comments after you subscribe to the channel or visit chroniccuriosity.com to get in contact with us and the store which you can pick yourself up some fantastically curious merchandise until next time see you.